South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. Yes, but don't dial right this second. You know, I know the frustration of getting busy signals, but I have to tell you, it sure makes me feel good when uh, by the time we go on the air, there are already uh, four people waiting to talk about gardening. That would be Mike and Penny and Carolyn and Carmen. And, uh, of course, you know I don't like keeping people waiting. There's so much to talk about on this, uh, oh, semi-foggy, warm January morning. But uh, bottom line is what's on your mind is what's most important. And since Mike called in first, well, Mike's up first. Good morning, Mike. Well, there ain't no semi-foggy to it. It's real foggy where I'm at right now. Where were you this morning? <laughs> in, in Johnson City. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, uh, my my question to you is this, Bob. Uh, here in the past, I've always started my tomatoes on uh, with the six packs. Yeah. Uh, the six packs are getting more and more difficult to get, and yeah, so right. this year, for the first time, I'm going to try to start them from seed. Now okay. I'm hit, sitting here at my desk with pen in hand, ready for instructions on how to start start them from seed. I, I, to give you a, a quick rundown, I've got Better Boy, Big Boy, Celebrities, and Romas starting off. And so or, anyway, uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for instructions. All right, sir. Well, a couple of questions. First of all, are you planning to start 15, 20, 25 plants, or are you planning to start 200 plants? Uh, I'm probably starting about 50, 50 to 100, somewhere around there, about 50, and, uh, 50 to 75, something like that, yeah. All right, and, um, and, and you're doing an assortment of varieties. That's correct. Okay, do you have any little empty six-packs left over from last year or from any previous Man, season? you know, I, I, I threw them away. You know, and I don't know. Uh, I, I guess that's, I should have. That's not a big deal. That's not a big deal, Mike. Um, again, if you were starting hundreds and hundreds, we'd be putting a lot of seed in one flat just to conserve space. We'd be sprouting it when they got up and started having the first true leaves. We'd be uh, doing like the big guys do and taking them out and planting them up in individual pots. Since uh, your garden is not that, well, since you're not crazy enough to try to, you know, grow six acres of tomatoes, um, mm -hmm. what you need to do is I just get the appropriate number of four-inch pots. Most nurseries mm -hmm. have used pots lying around that are just as good as the new ones. They just need to be rinsed mm -hmm. out. And just fill them with a good potting soil. Uh, put them in trays so they don't get washed over with watering and things like that. I like to put two seeds to a pot. That way mm -hmm. you are almost guaranteed that at least one of them will germinate. And if both of them germinate, all the better, because I like putting mm -hmm. two plants to a hole when I'm putting them in the vegetable garden. You want to just, uh, there are different ways to do it. You can, what I, I typically would do would be to take a, a pen or a pencil and just, you know, poke a little hole down in the soil, maybe three-eighths to half an inch deep. Mm -hmm. Drop a couple of seeds in, smooth it over with my index finger, move on to the next pot. Um, following that, I will water it very carefully, very thoroughly. Mm -hmm. I like using a very fine, you know, um, watering device. You can either get a very, very fine uh, breaker nozzle to put on the end of your hose. 
Right. I actually prefer what they call a fog nozzle. Speaking of fog, you screw it on the end of the hose. When you yeah. turn it on, it's practically like a fog coming out of the end of it. Takes a little longer to water, but that stream is so gentle, you're never going to wash a particle of soil out of the way. So we're mm-hmm. going to water super, super thoroughly. We're going to uh, then we're not going to water again until you know until it's dry on the surface. We're right. going to put that tray. If you have a propagating mat, you know, put it on top of that to uh, mm-hmm. you know, one or more because you're going to be putting 18 plants to a tray. And if you're growing 54 plants, that's going to be like three trays worth or or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the single most important, two most important things. Number one, keep them warm. Probably even more important than that, keep them bright. There is no way that you will give your little developing seed too much light and failure to give them enough light will wind up with a spindly plant which is hard to overcome so mm-hmm. sunniest window you've got greenhouse if you've got it um mm-hmm. just and and you'll periodically you know turn them 180 degrees so that as they sprout and come up first thing you're going to see is a little sprout come up that's got two odd little straight leaves of kind of like toothpick sticking out Mm-hmm. Those are actually not leaves. Those are part of the seed. They're called the cotyledons or the seed leaves. And mm-hmm. then following that, a little time later, you'll start having your first true leaves develop above and beyond that. Once you've got your you know, little green plants up, whether they've got just the cotyledons, whether they actually have their first true leaves on them, at that point, we're going to start making a real dilute solution of has to grow plant or maybe adding a little bit of Super Thrive, maybe adding a little bit of Medina's liquid fish blend, and we're going to be fertilizing them uh, every week or two. But um, the the thing I just cannot emphasize too much is just light, light, light. The mm-hmm. more light mm-hmm. you have, the stronger, the more compact your little plants are going to be, and the better your mm-hmm. long-term results are going to be. Okay. Uh, I have a couple of questions. What about these uh, um, little uh, peat moss cup, couplet things uh, that you that you get? Uh, you know, whenever you do buy the six packs, uh, typically you get the little peat moss things in, right. in inside the six packs. Is there well, any place where I can get those, or do I need to get those? You. Uh, um... Uh, you'll have to uh, probably go online if you want them. I do not like them because uh, the roots of the little plants just don't, right. uh, you know, don't penetrate through that. Yeah, I think they're mm-hmm. fine if you want to use them to start your seedlings. But as soon as you get mm-hmm. ready to transplant them, you totally peel, um, you know, peel right. that away from yep. the little plantlet uh you, mm-hmm. you don't leave it intact you get it off and away from the plant so that mm-hmm. those roots can grow out into the surrounding soil okay and what about these um uh, so-called starter kits put out by burpee or somebody like that uh, again uh, you're paying for convenience you know it's going it? to cost you you know six times as much for mm-hmm. no better results, it's just convenience. They're going to give you their version of soil, which is probably peat moss based, which you don't really care for. Um, uh-huh. They're going to give you their little version of uh, peat moss pot, basically maybe a little plug or something like that, which I'm not real fond of. But and they okay. may give you a little germinating dome that'll let you put a whole six plants out of your sixty underneath it. But um, uh-huh. again, those yeah. are for. 
those are for somebody that's not quite as skilled and experienced as you are. I'll just put yeah. it nicely. <laughs> uh-huh. I won't okay. say they're and for people that don't have nearly as much sense as you do. <laughs> what uh, what potting soil would you recommend? Just any good potting soil. Uh, you okay. don't have to get, I mean, you can buy a special seedling mix, but uh, if uh-huh. your normal potting soil that you get has a lot of bark or something in it, I would uh, make what we call a little trammel screen. I, you know, take some mm-hmm. uh, three-eighth inch hardware cloth and just, you know, screen your soil through that just to take out the big lumps. But uh, if you're getting good soil, uh, Nature's Creation or uh, Ladybug or something like that, you're going to be just fine. Okay. Well, I do have a place where I can put them. Uh, I've got a I've got a little bunkhouse separate from the, from the main house here, and so I, I can set up some lights. Do I leave the lights on twenty four seven or you leave the uh, lights on put a timer 7. on them or yeah, uh-huh. I'll leave them on twenty four seven. I'll uh-huh. say they need a minimum of twelve hours a day, but uh, if uh-huh. you uh, you know if you leave them on twenty four seven, they're going to be even happier. I see, I see. And the temperature should be, what, 60, 70, something like that? Somewhere between 65 and 80. 65 and 80. Okay, all right, I can do that. I can do that. Okay, well, uh, this is is my first attempt at starting from seed. Check in with me me along the way. See what happens. yeah, let's uh, monitor it. I would always plant 10% more than you need yeah. because, yeah. you know, Murphy is going to come up every now and then and step on a plant or break off a plant or do something like that. But, That's uh, true. You're going to ask yourself why you waited so long to do it. That's true. All right, and so, but I can get it started like this, this coming week, you know, uh, or is that too soon? Um. And you're, you said you're located uh, fairly far in up Johnson in Johnson City. Yeah, fairly far up in the Hill Country. So um, if you're, it's going to take you six weeks to make a nice transplant. So right. you tell me when the weather's going to be right. If you typically plant, oh, um, no. <laughs> you know, if you typically plant the 1st of April, then you'll want to be starting your seed around the 15th of February. If you typically plant the 15th of March, you will be starting your seed about the 1st of February. If you're uh-huh. the guy that wants to have the first tomatoes on the block, you'll start your seed now. But when yeah. your little seedlings are up and three or four inches tall, you'll move them up into a bigger pot. And you yeah. get to the point you have to get your backhoe out to dig a hole to plant them in the garden. But <laughs> yeah. it just yeah. depends on whether yeah. you want to go with a, yeah. you know, a standard transplant size or whether you really want to get ahead. And if you have the time and the space and pots, you can always start them earlier and put them in bigger pots. Right. Okay. Uh, I did not get any early girls. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll do get the early girls, but uh, I didn't get any this year. But, but you know, anyway... Uh, you you might want to log on sometime to David's Garden Seed. Um, this guy's a he he's just I've known him probably four or five years now. A tremendously nice individual. Uh, yeah. He's down in Poteet, so he's right here in our own backyard, so to speak. Uh-huh. And he's got over a hundred varieties of tomato seed, and he sells them in nice little packages with a reasonable number of seed in each package. So it's not like going to you know Baker Creek or one of the other good growers where you have to buy a quarter of a pound of seed or something like that. So that's enough to plant yeah. half an acre of tomatoes. If you want to expand yeah. your varieties and you're looking for you know something that you can't find, long on to see if David's got it or give him a call. He, you'll enjoy this. 
messing with him. But uh, uh, it's it's now we just have a good source for a lot of variety without having to buy huge packages of seeds. Now, I got these from Wilhite. I don't know yeah. if you're a big fan of Wilhite or not, oh, but anyway. Kind of a typical, you know, yeah. big ag company, and uh, we're stuck okay. with them. And I, yeah. I, you know, what is, I'm trying to remember whose great quote it was, but uh, uh, people who complain about something without proposing a solution are just complainers or something. And I don't know whether it was Will Rogers or who said that, okay. but no, nah, I'm not fond of Will Hyde. But, you know, until I, okay. until I can tell you something that's a whole lot better, I, I doesn't do any good to throw stones. Okay, good. Okay, good deal. All right, Bob. Hey, I'm I'm ready to rock and roll here, so uh, uh, we'll talk to you later. You know where to find me if you need me, Mike. I appreciate the call Thanks. this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Certainly. Goodbye. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Penny. Good morning, Penny. Hi, Bob. Hi there. I, I received a poinsettia for Christmas. Congratulations. And now I need to know, <laughs> now I need to know how to take care of it. Treat it basically like you would a bright light house plant. Keep it warm. Keep it in as much sun as you can possibly keep it in. Water it thoroughly whenever it's dry on the surface. Feed it monthly with has to grow or something like that. Uh, If it gets so big that you're having trouble keeping it watered, move it up to a little bit bigger pot and you will be the tomato queen or the uh, poinsettia queen. Okay. I don't need any special light diversions or anything like that for periods of time nothing whatsoever poinsettias are we have to do special things to them in the fall to get them to turn color at the appropriate season Um, other than that brief period in the fall we grow them exactly like we would a dracaena marginata or a ficus benjamina or you know whatever you know whatever makes you happy as far as uh, growing a house plant or uh, you know, a patio plant. Just remember to keep them well above freezing. I would try to keep them 65 or above if possible. Okay. I was told I was supposed to put it in a closet until a certain time of year. And God, you're, you're talking to the wrong people and, and reading the stupid stuff on the Internet. The, the truth about poinsettias is that poinsettias have a little built-in computer of their own that tells them uh, how long it's dark and how long it's light. They know better than anything else when the days have gotten short and it's the middle of winter. They know when the days have gotten long and it's the middle of the summer. And this is what triggers the flowering. And it's, you know, it's, it's a change in the coloration of the leaves and ultimately those little yellow weird things that are the flowers. We have to do this... Um, in typically starting in about October and we don't just put them in the closet and forget about them or there won't be a healthy plant when you go back to look at it but we have to match the natural day-night cycle and that little plant knows hey the days are getting shorter I better flower and so we do that uh, beginning in about October but the rest of the time they can have like 24 hours a day and they would just grow that much better okay okay and um the pot that it's in, it, it's leaning to one side. It, it's I think it's too big for the pot that it's in. Okay. And what the? It, it's in a six-inch pot now. Okay. Uh, go like ahead and go up. Go up to about an eight-inch pot. Okay. And just any good um, potting soil. All right. And you said feed it once a month. I would feed it uh, every two to four weeks. Uh, you know, it'd be nice to do it a little bit more often, but reality says that most of us, if we get around to it once a month, we're doing well. 
Okay. And then also, I have a Christmas cactus that, um, I, do I feed it? It has to grow as well. I, I've Absolutely. never fed my Christmas cactus. Treat your Christmas cactus exactly like you're going to treat your poinsettia. Christmas okay. cacti are not desert cacti. They never want to get totally dry. They would like to dine regularly. Uh, they are very resilient plants, and they will survive a lot of abuse and a lot of, again, stupid stuff you read on the Internet. But you would be amazed if you give them a little bit of care. I mean, you can have 50 flowers in a, uh, you know, in a, a five-inch pot. It's, they, will, they, they may get by with minimal care. They will absolutely thrive with a little bit of additional care. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You do the same, and a happy new year, Penny. Thank you. You too, <laughs> Bye. All right, Carolyn and, uh, and Carmen, hang on just a second. <clears throat> I get to talk to you for a moment about the folks I was just talking about, those guys being David's Garden Seed. And, again, I, I get, I've known David for such a long time, and I'm so happy he's given me a, an opportunity to talk to him again here on, or about him again here on KTSA Radio. This is a guy who knows seed, and watching him grow over the years, he's now producing virtually all of his own seed. He's built quite a facility, which you're welcome to visit down in the Poteet area. I'll let you go to his website to get the directions if you'd like to go down there. But he welcomes visitors. He's got these monstrous hundred and some odd foot or maybe 300 foot long rows where he's got his plants out there. He's growing for seed. He's got a hundred foot greenhouse where he's growing things that he needs to protect or needs to control the cross-pollination. David simply is the, well, I'm certain in in Texas and probably in practically in the South, he's one of the leading seed producers now. And the nice thing about what he does, number one, he's got over 2,000 varieties of seed. Number two, things you're looking for like tomatoes, he's got over 100 varieties of them there. Number three, he puts his seed in reasonable size packages. So, you know, you don't, you don't have to buy 500 seeds to, you know, get a few tomato seeds if you want lets you buy a lot more diversity without spending a whole bunch of money. And he's on the Internet. He sells most of his seeds over the Internet. You certainly don't have to drive to Boutique to see him if you don't want to. But I tell you what, if you're going down that way, I think you would really enjoy a trip to visit him. <laughs> he's such a crazy guy. He's even got a wedding chapel down there now. need to get down and see him. You need to check him out today online. It's davidsgardenseeds.com. He welcomes your calls and inquiries, and you will find him He that he is a pleasure to do business with David's Garden Seeds. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Carolyn and Carmen and Tina. Carolyn is first. Good morning, Carolyn. Well, good morning. I've got a couple of questions. Uh, I bought the bunches of onions to plant. Uh-huh. Okay. The same place I buy them at a farm store every year, and they're always a great, great onions. Right. However, this year, instead of 50 onions in there, there are about 30, and about a third of them are, are already making bulbs. They're not the <clears throat> nice, slender, you know, onions that you find in those um, packs. Mm-hmm. Right. So I wonder what, what those uh, bulbs are going to do or... How do I plant them differently? I mean, they already look like maturing onions. Yeah. I I would plant them exactly the same. I mean, might space them slightly more. 
they when and and they all come from the same place. Uh, we've got one big onion grower here in Texas called Dixondale Farms, right. and uh-huh. uh, you know sometimes they're going to give you a bunch of onions that's about three inches thick. Sometimes that's going to be 125 little onion plants, and sometimes that's going to be 40 onion plants. But it's uh, their machine or however they do it. It doesn't count plants. It it judges by the size of the bunch. If you could see this you would see a basically a a well it's not a tray it's i'm sure they're doing most everything in the ground but it's just an absolute forest of little onion plants and they're just breaking out this little three and a half diameter bundle and not counting how many plants are in there uh, at this point they were a little bit later getting their onions on the market this time probably because of weather and chances are the plants is, had just gotten a little bit bigger before they started packaging and shipping so i would treat them the same hopefully hopefully they're not going to bolt uh, because that has more to do with day length than it does with size of plant oh okay but, uh, and in my garden it simply means yeah, no, it, it simply means that I had to buy three times as many bundles of onions. That's what I had to do. I had to buy, you know, I have a small garden, but I had to buy sure. two bundles in order to, you know, I usually plant, you know, the white and the, and I usually, I like the granites anyway. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and and uh, I had to buy two bundles in order to get as many as I usually get. And, I, and, and they well, were, now you understand right, why. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. The bundles were the same size, but they put so many big onions in them yep. that they did, they don't have as many onions in them. Okay, all right. So I didn't know if I had to treat them any different. The oh, other ma'am. thing you is just I, do like you always do, and uh, uh, you as always just let me know when I can uh, answer those questions or help you in any way, Carolyn. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Okay, uh, and then the mason bee houses. Uh, I had them several years ago, and for a couple of years I would see the mud in them and and they would uh you know I I know the mason bees were in there. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm I'm needing to get some more because they quit they quit getting the bees. Okay. You know and I think the I guess the wood got old. I don't know what 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 else happened, but I need to know a one-on-one on what to look for in mason bee houses cuz I I went to a local store here and they're just they just put anything in there and make them look oh, like yeah. mason bee houses. And and not only that, some of them are only three inches deep, and I know they are supposed to be deeper than that for the male and the female um, mason bees. So I need a 101. Well, that's uh, my pleasure. Uh, first of all, realize that we have like 100 species of na- mason bees here in Texas. So it's a little hard to generalize. Some of them are very small little bees, and their idea of a nice tunnel to, uh, you know, build their setup family housekeeping in would be maybe an eighth of an inch, maybe maximum a quarter of an inch of diameter, which is like a tiny little you know drink straw or something like that other varieties of mason bees are as big as a bumblebee and their idea of a nice home is going to be the you know a three-quarter inch hole so it uh you you can expect to find you know a variety of sizes and basically if you're buying a mason bee hive so to speak although they're solitary bees we really shouldn't call them a hive but what you're going to get is like a heavily waxed soda straw and you're just going to have like a hundred or more of these things just stacked one on top of the other and glued together and the sizes are going to vary 
and you know it's it's built in obsolescence they don't want them to last forever they want them to last for two or three years and then want you to come buy another one so that's what you're most likely going to find when you visit a nature store or something like that uh, if you're handy or have a friend who is you can take an old piece of wood and uh, cedar just you know old common uh, juniper uh, is I think still the best it needs to be old and dry not a lot of sap in it or if you're going to go out and buy a chunk of lumber or get somebody to give you a chunk of lumber uh, the western red cedar which is commonly sold as rough cedar uh, I get a little block of uh, you know six by six and uh, maybe oh 10 12 inches long I put a ring bolt in the top of it so you can hang it and then I get out my carpenter's drill and I drill a bunch of quarter inch holes I drill a bunch of 3 8 inch holes I drill some of them you know half inch or even 5 8 of an inch thick and I just you know go on all four sides of that block and just you know make put my holes not real close together maybe an inch apart but uh, with one piece of wood, uh, one ring bolt, and something to, you know, something to hang it from, you can make your own mason be hive uh, for, uh, you know, for just pennies, literally. And it'll be totally as good as anything you can buy, just not nearly as convenient. Well, that's what I did several years ago, and I still <laughs> have them. But they're not attracting any mason bees. And I, I didn't know if there's some way to clean them. And, or, or, and use them or I have to start over and well, if, um, if you had a you know powerful stream of water a little pressure washer or something like that or if you had a little tiny bottle brush kind we use to clean the little feeding ports on a hummingbird feeder um, you could take those things and just one by one go in and just you know clean out every little hole uh, they over time, you know, the bees get mites, they get different kinds of things which could potentially be a problem or make it a less healthy place for the bees. So they simply move on and find a new home. They they don't have a way to do to really do a thorough house cleaning. So when their house gets dirty, they just go find a new home. Um, you could go through, you could clean thoroughly. Uh, you could probably use a little bit of hydrogen peroxide to take care of uh, any insects or any little disease spores. Uh, that happen to be residing there. So, yes, you could certainly uh, clean them uh, yourself. But uh, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get rid of all the little mites and things like that that have taken up residence there over the years that make it a less healthy place for the bees. Yeah, and I saw advertised some paper straws to put in there. You uh -huh. know, some of them ha ha have paper straws now that they put yeah. in, and I guess they take them out every year and and does that work too it works fine but like you uh, accurately observed is a very short lifespan for those things what they do they literally just stack them one on top of the other they just glue a big bundle of straws together and then probably have a very sharp saw or knife and just you know cut them off on each end usually about four or five inches long i'd like them a little bit longer than that but uh, uh, the bees aren't particular. Their favorite place they go to around uh, our nursery is they go plug up all their wind chimes. <laughs> and, oh, my goodness. Okay, you know, the other thing, yeah. The other thing is, uh, oh, let's see. Okay, I can clean them. Okay, the ones on the shelf that I can buy, they're only three inches deep, and I, I understand that they should be deeper than three inches. Well, it all so depends on the mason bee. 
It all depends on the mason bee. Oh. There are species oh, of mason okay. bees that are happy with a little house, and then there are the big guys that want much deeper than that. But uh, when you consider that you've got a hundred different kind of bees, you you really can't generalize and make one rule that fits everybody. Okay, so I can, I'm gonna, uh, I, I'll, uh, I'll try to clean them out, then, uh, and use the old ones. And uh, what when would you put them out in this area? Anytime uh, now. Anytime. Oh, now. anytime now. Right. So I and realize that mason high. bees are actually much better at pollinating than honeybees. So you're yeah, doing a very sure. good thing. Yeah, and and I had okay. Well, that that answers my questions. Okay, so it doesn't have to be six inches deep then. No, ma'am. And uh, oh, okay. You just get all kind of information on the internet, don't well, you? Well, <laughs> just just I I'm one of these guys that just has to put it in something that I can visualize. And you know, look at look at your neighborhood. Uh, you may have some one-bedroom houses, and you may have some six-bedroom houses. And it's just because different families have different needs, and that's the way I would think of it with my basin bees. You just can't build one house and think that everybody's going to live in it. Oh, okay, all right. Well, I'll try cleaning them out with the hydrogen peroxide. I've got several of those uh, that yeah. that were homemade. Yeah, and get your little yes. bitty get your little bitty bottle brush, like you clean the ports on a hummingbird feeder, and use that to clean the little individual holes. Okay, where would you find those small brushes? Uh, um, any nature store or um, you know, any anywhere that sells uh, things that to support wild birds, uh, you're going to find them about twenty five cents a piece. Yeah, well, good luck in this area. Okay, <laughs> all right. So they don't. I don't know of a nature store, but I'll I'll look around and yeah. uh, try look, to look for Wild Birds Unlimited. Look for Wild Birds Unlimited. Their their stores are all over the place. All the stores are okay. unique. Uh, they shop for their own individual products on top of the Wild Birds Unlimited products. But oh. uh, uh, I would be willing to bet you that you'll find a Wild Birds Unlimited store not too far from you. Won't be as good as ours here in San Antonio, but uh, oh, no. they would have them and uh, might even be. I mean, if they're as nice as our guys are, they'd probably mail them to you. Oh, thank you so much. Always okay, a pleasure this, talking this to you, and uh, say hi to North Texas for me, and we'll talk again, Carolyn. I thank you, and let me get a break in here so we can keep on going through the calls. I get to talk to about the Cedar Eater of Texas. You know, I guess that's one negative thing about the Cedar Eater of Texas, and that is they take down a, a lot of big old nasty cedars that the, that the cedar bees really like. But, uh, you know, they know it's important to leave some of the big old trees around, too. So uh, that's a very small thing. But Cedar Eater of Texas is just your best, your land's best friend. And they're your best friend, too, when it comes to the thought of you're having to clear all that cedar and then figure out what to do with it, rent a chipper or burn it. Boy, those are both bad ideas. And, uh, I certainly don't want to be bulldozing at all. The cedar eater takes care of that cedar problem with a machine that cuts off the cedar at ground level, kills it effectively when it does that, then grinds it into a nice mulch all in one operation. Uh, I imagine they've got a video somewhere that you can watch. You will not believe, I mean, turn the sound down. That's the noisiest machine I think I've ever heard. But uh, they can clear acres and acres and acres in a single day. And they can work right around your existing oak trees and elm trees and escarpment cherries. If you've got trees that uh, you want to save... <clears throat> 
excuse me, that have a lot of cedar up close to them, uh, they'll send in a hand clearing crew. They'll cut that cedar, drag it out in the open, and in just a second or two, the big machine will turn it into a beautiful pile of mulch for you. They also offer services where they can take down big trees that might have died in the freeze last year, maybe died of oak wilt, and there's no danger of spreading oak wilt this way. Uh, but, you know, whatever you've got a big tree that has a danger to fall on your house or your fence, well, Cedar Eater has a bigger machine called the Wilt Eater that'll take those down and turn them into a nice mulch. Even have a machine called the Grubber that rips mesquite out of the ground, roots and all. This is a company that's been around for years. Parks and Wildlife uses them, Forest Service uses them, and many, many smart ranchers use them as well. It's just, uh, you just need to get in contact and find out all the wonderful service they, uh, services they offer. Have a North Texas and a South Texas location. And by the way, if you're clearing those senderas down on your big South Texas ranch, that brush may come back, but I can't, I bet you they could do 25 miles a day with their machine clearing senderas. Think how long it would take your hand crew to be doing that. Learn more, just give them a call. 210-745-2743. That's 210-745-2743 for the C eater of texas south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right back to gardening and for the first time in the show i do have an open line or two if you want to grab it uh back to the phone lines and it's carmen's turn good morning carmen yes good morning sir Hope you good can morning help. I'm calling for a disabled friend who lives in Bernie. She has a drainage ditch on her property. And uh-huh. when she bought that property, she was told that the city would take care of it. She mentioned spraying. I don't know that's the best solution. But uh, she did try calling, but without success. And I was wondering if you uh, had a recommendation who she could call, uh, some leads or something. Is she uh, in productive. the city of Bernie proper? As far as I know, yes. Okay. Um, I would always tell her start with her city council person. Uh, those people are generally pretty readily accessible. Um, if they aren't, then uh, they should. she should probably call, oh, I don't know, one of the utilities, one of the Bernie utilities. Uh, if nothing else, you know, I'm not... I'm not somebody that stands by idly if if things aren't being done. Uh, yeah. Our new because city manager. Because this drainage ditch. A, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's and, it's but, a haven. It's a uh, it's a breeding ground for mosquitoes, and she can't sure. get out on her her deck. Yeah. Yeah. I I you know I'd go all the way up to the city manager if I had to. City council person should take care of that. But, uh, you know, I, and Tim Handren, don't, don't call me and say, don't do that. Uh, if it doesn't work, call the mayor. His name's Tim Handren. Call the city manager. His name's Ben Thatcher. They're, they're really good people, and they are mm-hmm. anxious to help the people that pay their bills. So I'm going to start with my city council person, or um, that, that's probably going to be probably the best mm-hmm. place to go. And just be persistent, you know. Sometimes the, you know, what is it they say? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. And, um, mm-hmm. um, but they should, uh, I mean, if it is, if it is public land, then it's their responsibility to take care of it. Now, if it is actually on your property, then you may have an issue that you have to deal with. And, uh, uh, and they may not want to take responsibility for it. If that turns out to be the case, <clears throat> Uh, 
then then there are things you can put out the product called BTI, which you can get as in a granular form that uh, is harmless to people and pets, but it does kill mosquito larvae very well. Now, mm-hmm. mosquitoes are less of a problem than they were in the spring because it hadn't been raining. But uh, I'd, I'd start with your, uh, you know, the city of Bernie and uh, and say, okay, I need a clarification, uh, and I want this in writing. Whose responsibility is it to care for this? And um, and, and just keep after them. You know, they they've got they've got a a lot of area to cover and a lot of job to do but you're giving them several thousand dollars for your tax money every year and you have a right to demand something in return for it okay okay but uh there wouldn't be any name in particular that you would point her to i don't know uh i don't know which district she lives in and because i don't live mm-hmm. in bernie i could give you i give you the name of uh every you know, every county commissioner out there, along with the police chief and the sheriff and mm-hmm. everybody else. But uh, I, I stay out of Bernie, you know, unless I just have to go there. And so while I know a number of the city council people, um, I, I, I don't know the districts nearly as well. Now, if you want to talk Kendall County, we can we can talk all day long. But uh, I'm afraid I, I wouldn't have that name. But go to the city of Bernie. Uh, they've got quite mm-hmm. a website there. And uh, if she's not computer literate, I'm sure you can help her. But uh, go to the City of Bernie's website, and uh, you'll you'll find more numbers than you have time to dial. Okay. Okay, then. I'll see what uh, I'll see. Would I be able to call back if she didn't can't get any results? Maybe with something more more specific information. Again, I you know uh, I I will happily give you everything I have. Uh, but if you want to, you can go down to the, to the new city hall building. It's uh, down there near the Patrick Heath Library. And uh, you can go knock on somebody's door, and you can stand there in front of the little window until somebody pays attention to you. But uh, that's mm-hmm. um, that, that's where I would start, and we'll just see where you go from there. Again, what you've got to first clarify is whether it is truly the city's responsibility or whether it is whether it's actually on your property and they feel that you're responsible for it. That's the first question we have to get answered. Okay. Okay, then. Thank you. I appreciate your help. Always a pleasure, Carmen. Thank you for the call this morning. All right, Tana, I have to... Excuse me, I have to ask you to hold on just one more minute because I get to talk about Medina Agriculture. And I never pass up a chance to talk about Medina Agriculture because their products are so good. Now, be the first to tell you they don't do any good while they're in the bag or the bottle. You've got to mix them up. You've got to use them according to directions. But the results are just absolutely spectacular when you do. Medina has dry granular fertilizers like their certified organic growing green fertilizer. It's great for your fruit trees along with your vegetables and your berry bushes and your new asparagus bed that you're just planting along with your flower beds and uh, just everything out there in the landscape. Great liquid products too. I'll tell you, my greenhouse, I alternate the Hester Grow plant formula with the new liquid fish blend formula. Anybody that's seen my orchids just, yes, it just will take your breath away, the kind of results that it produces. We'll do the same thing with your flowers, with your house plants. You just have to get out and use them. But Dean also makes wonderful products to help soften that soil over time. That's how their company got started 60 years ago. And they also have lots of different supplements. They have, oh gosh, things that I don't always talk about. The biological odor control. If you've got an area that smells musty or just doesn't... Uh, uh, doesn't have a real clean, fresh scent, maybe a garage, maybe a laundry room, maybe a storage shed. You know, they actually have natural products that will take care of the things that produce those odors. 
Benina has products that will help your septic system. I don't talk about these things all the time because the one thing we all have in common is a garden, but uh, they have lots of other products for lots of other uses. Located right over in Hondo, Texas, every product they have was developed right here. Their products are used worldwide. I was standing in Stewart's, uh, uh, one of his work areas one time. He had to stop and take a call from Scandinavia, and then he had to stop and take a call from the Middle East. People all over the world have figured out how good Medina products are, but you know I think they work right here at home the very best. So when you're visiting a good nursery or garden center, you just look for that name, Medina Agriculture. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this. Uh, hey, the fog is burning off. The clouds are going away, and it looks like it's going to be a gorgeous Sunday out there. Uh, it's going to be Tana and Mark and uh, Dana and Bob. Tana is waiting very patiently. Good morning, Tana. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I have, <laughs> I have two questions, both related to cold weather and freezes and stuff. The first okay. one is... Uh, there's the row covers, and then there's these green um, pieces blankets. of some kind of blankets. Yep. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> and uh, which do you prefer and why? And well, uh, is it okay I, to leave them on if it rains? Uh, yes, yes, it is. I prefer the white ones. Uh, I prefer there is a variety called insulate. It's like the letter N and then S-U-L-A-T-E. Mm-hmm. I like them because they work. Uh, I've tried them both. The green ones, everything I put them on froze. I had very, very bad luck with that one, and um, I haven't used them since. The uh, insulate fabric uh, not only can be left on in the rain, but it transmits enough light that you could leave it on all winter if you wanted to. Uh, Roberta, my business partner, and I have put them on like mandevillas and tropical vines and things like that, wrapped them up in uh, November and not taken them off until March, and the plants still get enough light through the insulate to uh, you know, continue to meet their needs through the winter months. So, uh, and, and simple, I like the white ones, and I like them because they work, and I have not had good luck with the others. Okay, and the second question is, uh, like some of your other callers who uh, was not prepared, prepared for how low it went, the first freeze. <laughs> well, and like me, it's not only my callers, but me too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a Myers lemon that is a new plant from the spring, Mm -hmm. and I have a um, Miho Satsuma that came back above the grass, graft, Mm -hmm. uh, from our horrid freeze. Right. Now, the leaves are still green, Uh but they're very, very dry, other than the Super Thrive and the has to grow, what can I do to help them? Pray for warm weather to continue. It's uh, <laughs> I, I'm, it, it sounds to me like uh, throughout, you know, the, the near San Antonio area, we did not get 
plant killing temperatures for citrus. Now it took out a lot of bedding plants, it took out a lot of vegetables. Uh, it got cold enough, it got frosty enough that it did a lot of cosmetic damage and it burned a lot of leaves. But uh, I'm not going to do anything with them when those leaves get kind of crispy, and they probably will. I'm just going to, you know, take my thumb and forefinger and just run it up and down the stem and kind of break away the damaged tissue. But unless we get, you know, more severe cold and, uh, you know, we're, we're only we're just starting January and we've got a long way to go before this winter's over. But what you experience this week, I do not imagine especially on your miho but uh on all of your citrus i don't think you had any more than uh, cosmetic damage shana okay i appreciate it and i thank you very much kind sir well it is always a pleasure and uh i i think you would benefit with uh your has to grow with your super thrive you know all those things that you're used to using in this case i would you know put some in a bucket and use it to give the plants a thorough watering but i'd also give them a good foliar spraying i would repeat it uh you know in a week or so i would stand you know stock up on that insulate fabric because again uh it, like i jokingly say it doesn't do any good while it's in the package and uh <laughs> we've we've got a long way to go before this winter is over but uh the, the scary thing to me is remember one january it was february last year when we had the you know the super super damaging period of time there and uh uh, so wait, let's just let's just keep our fingers crossed, and uh, I guess in this case, keeping your powder dry means uh, keeping your insulate fabric good and handy. And uh, as always, you call me if you have more questions. Okay, uh, one has occurred. If uh, when I use the insulate, mm -hmm. do I wrap it loosely or as tightly as I can? Ah, that's totally up to you. I like to wrap oh, it medium tight just so that it doesn't okay. whip back and forth in the wind. And in the event that they forecast really severe weather, you can always wrap it two or three layers thick. Okay, doke. Well, I will contact my son and ask him not to get the blankets, but to get the insulate. <laughs> You'll be doing a good job, Tana. You have a wonderful day, a good week, and I know we'll talk again. I also know I'll be right back after news. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening on what's just going to be a really, uh, it's just going to be a beautiful Sunday out there. I mean, it's going to be as, as dreary and overcast as it was yesterday. It looks like it's just going to be the absolute reverse today. It's just going to be just kind of kind of postcard weather, you might say. Uh, we're talking gardening. We're going to talk next to Mark and Dana and Bob and Karen, and Mark is up next. Good morning, Mark. Morning, sir. How you doing? Off to a good start. How about yourself? Pretty good. I had a couple of questions. Um, so I had a, a, a bird uh, plant a tree for me, and I found out that it's called a Chinese tallow tree. Okay. And, and um, I don't know too much about it, uh, and it's right near one of my main gardens, so I don't know if this is a, a good thing to have near your garden or a bad thing. I, I mean, it had beautiful color during the fall, I know that. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I just don't know too much about it. Well, uh, I'm glad you called. Uh, 
Uh, my old uh, one of my mentors, a wonderful gentleman named Alton Grimm, told me a long time ago. He said, "There's no such thing as a good tree or bad tree." He said, "All trees have some good characteristics and some tree and some bad characteristics." So, uh, the good side of your tallow tree, fairly fast growing, some of the prettiest fall color that you will ever find. Uh, if you're looking for red color, it's almost impossible to beat tallow for consistent color year after year after year. Uh, on the negative side, they tend to be a somewhat messy tree. Seems like you just always have a few little tiny limbs, you know, coming down out of them. Uh, they like a little bit of extra moisture. They're kind of like a sycamore, but if you take care of them, they could easily grow for you for 30 or 40 years. In town, I have no objection to tallow trees. Uh, in the country, they do have the problem that they can be invasive. They can make a lot of seed, and there are areas where they, you know, they're, they're just too thick. They're just crowding things out, and... Uh, uh, they, like I said, they can be an invasive species, so I'm not going to be planting them around my ranch. But in town where, you know, you're not going to have a problem with them spreading, uh, and if the birds plant a few of them, you can just pick them up or cut them down or whatever you like. Uh, but they are not really prone to any specific disease or insect problems. Now, it got, as you know, very cold last uh, February, and unfortunately, a lot of the tallows froze. They did not stand up real well to the kind of temperatures we had last uh, last year. But again, that kind of temperature is a relatively rare thing here. And uh, they haven't been damaged in 30 years. And hopefully, it'll be 30 years before we have them again. So uh, it comes down, the bottom line comes down to is if you like it, leave it. If you don't, cut it down. Now, as far as being near your garden, it will make a big tree. You will have to prune it periodically. Shade could become an issue. So that's probably going to be the single biggest influence on whether I leave it or take it out. Okay. And um, do you know if it's, if it's a, a poisonous tree or is it? Uh... No. No. No, if you want to look it up, his botanical name, if I remember right, is Sapium, S-A-P-I-U-M, Sapium sabiferum. But, uh, no, there's nothing about it that's toxic that I'm aware of. Okay. And then my second question, I had a uh, a pecan tree about uh, five years old, and uh, I, I really didn't care for this tree. It just wasn't doing too well. Um, so I just decided, you know what, I'm going to try to transplant it, and if it grows, great. If not, you know, uh, no harm. Okay. And so I, I dug it up and I looked at the root. It had a long, uh, the taproot was, yeah. was girdling around itself. Okay. And so what I did was I, I cut the girdling part off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I transplanted it back into another area of my, of my land. And I'm just wondering, you know, it was, would that, was that a good thing or a bad thing? Cause I really, it really doesn't matter if it survives to me or not, but I just want to well, know if, if I should have handled it exactly part right. Off. You handled it exactly right, and at this point, um, it, you know, the thing that you can do to give it the best chance of surviving is every time you walk by that tree, pick up your hose and just spray up and down the trunk because, as you so accurately observed, it has a structure very much like a taproot, and uh, it, it's slow to grow a new root system, and in the meantime, uh, it will absorb a lot of moisture directly through the bark. Uh, years ago, when I worked with Alton Grimm, boy, we sold a lot of pecan trees, and it was one of my many jobs to go out there four times a day, pick 
pick up the hose and just spray down those big buckets that we had our uh, bare-root pecan trees in. So that will give it the best chance of surviving. Uh, you don't want to water it too often, but if you were to spray it down with your hose six times a day, uh, it would love you for it, and you've handled it exactly right. It has the potential to come out and grow and make a nice tree for you at this point. Uh, we'll just have to give it a little time and see how it does. Yeah, I was just, my concern was that since I cut that root, I was wondering, did I just alter the way it was going to uh, stabilize in the soil? No, or, no, you know. not at all. This is this is uh, this is like saying, uh, does is when I get a haircut as a kid, does that affect how my hair is going to look when I'm an adult? <laughs> no, not at all. That uh, you know, yeah. ten years from now, that tree will have you know every every root that was on there before will have been replaced by fifty new roots. So uh, you did what you had to do to give the tree the potential to grow. Now it's just up to whether the tree wants to do that or not. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate your help, sir. Well, that's a really good question, Mark. I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. right, Dana's up next. Good morning, Dana. Hi, Dana. Good morning. Oh, how are you this morning? Off to a very good start on a beautiful Sunday. Well, it sounds like you have sun, but we don't have it quite yet. Well, it's, uh, we didn't start out that way, but it's. Uh, I'm looking at blue sky out my out my office window here, so it's definitely uh, improving. Well, I'm going to hope for that. We're still overcast, about 70 miles from you. Well, um, I have a question. My mom is has lived in this house for 60 years, uh-huh. and it's kind of in an old um, riverbed. And everything around there, all the houses are a mess because of the foundation. And the dirt is clumpy, gooey. It's just awful. I'm wondering about just taking her flower bed and just putting compost like you always talk about on Mm -hmm. top of your vegetable garden and just put a big layer of it Uh and let it sit for a few months until March or February and well, I guess we're almost into February. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, unless your calendar is yeah. different than mine, they're not. They're not a few months in there. But yes, I would, do, I would do flower beds. I'm in denial. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I would do flower beds just the same way as a vegetable garden. Putting out some compost would help. Uh, putting out anything that stimulates microbial activity is such. Uh, nature is just so amazing, and it's hard to realize that the things that do the best to improve soil are things that we can't even see. They're mainly the bacteria in the soil, and yet they generate more what we call biomass than anything else out there. So compost is a great start. Uh, Things like molasses, either liquid molasses or dry molasses, also will work at improving that soil. Medina makes this product they call their uh, soil activator. That's what the company started out with uh, 60 years ago. And, you know, none of these things work overnight. The compost is going right. to be the fastest acting, but things like molasses and uh, Medina Plus, soil activator, things like that, those are going to uh, just to keep making the soil better and better and better. And as I'm sure you know, and she probably knows too, the second thing we have to do is not undo the good that we're doing, which means you don't go out and uh, uh, you know, put a bunch of compost and uh, dry molasses out and then follow it up with uh, Oh, I won't I won't call some of these fertilizers by name, but the ones you see at the box stores, you're just undoing yeah. all the good you did when you go out and you buy those right. synthetic chemical products. So but you know that. I just say that no, for the benefit of fifty thousand other people out there. Yeah. Yes. 
But I was wondering, should I put soil activator on prior to the compost all over her yard or front yard? You know, it's uh, it's kind of like eating dinner. You can eat your meat first, your vegetables first, your dessert first. It doesn't first. matter. It okay. doesn't really matter at all. So you do what is convenient uh, for Dana. How often would you put the soil activator on? Would it be like a few months? I would, it, or, I would do it monthly if you can. I think it, okay. you, won't, you won't gain a lot if you do it more than that. Uh, the okay. farmers who started out doing this uh, on land, mm-hmm. they were probably doing it quarterly when they were doing hundreds or thousands of acres. But uh, in a home garden, I think once a month, every 30 days or so would be ideal. Okay. Uh, one other thing down where we are um, has a lot of clay and sand, and I have learned a lot. Huh lot that I didn't want to know about planting <laughs> things down here. Right. Uh, trees that would die just because the hole holds water. Mm-hmm. Um, and is there anything I can do on top of some coastal in a front yard that um, puts some sand, some compost, something to help it not and add some, I wanted to add some grass to it, some maybe some other well uh, your your compost your compost is going to be the the same principles you're applying for your flower beds are going to apply to your yard as well and the thing to remember is that water doesn't hurt anything but when you get so much water in your soil that it drives all the oxygen out then you've got a big problem and it's not that the water's killing things it's that the lack of oxygen is causing things to suffocate so uh any areas where you have a real standing water problem. Now, over time, uh, the things we've talked about are going to help take care of that. But uh, if I wanted to have a beautiful flower bed in that spot, I'd create a raised bed, either, you know, actually creating a border around the bed with rock or stone or, you know, brick or whatever else. Or I'd simply berm it up, just create a nice little, you know, third dimension to that. And that really increases your drainage and makes it possible for you to grow a lot of things that would probably just rot if you stuck them down in that swampy mess that you have right now. So it just, you you can turn this into a really good situation. It's just how patient you're going to be with it, how much you're willing to give nature a little bit of time to work on it, and how much you want overnight results. And that's going to make the difference of uh, whether you use a little compost or a lot of compost, whether you do your molasses once uh, every two weeks or whether you do it once every quarter. Uh, it's just the more you put into it, the more you will reap from it. Okay. Well, that sounds great. I appreciate your confirmation on that. I was thinking I would do that, but I thought I better check with Bob, make sure that's well, I'm not missing. Sometimes you can avoid expensive mistakes that way, and it's always a pleasure yes. to hear from you. You get out and have a good <laughs> Sunday, and I think the sun will show up pretty soon for you. Okay, I'm waiting. All right, thank <laughs> Thanks, you. Thanks, Dana. Bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's get a little break in here. Uh, Bob and Karen will be my next two callers, but I get to shift gears a little bit and talk about your house, talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and I just, you know, peace of mind. Look at the world today. How many different things is the news media out there telling you that you need to worry about? And let me tell you, it just gets to be a really, just a big drag when you've just got all these different things just wearing at you. Then the storms are forecast, and then you're worried about a leak in your roof. And, you know, the one thing you do not have to worry about is your roof. If you get a roof from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, they simply, well, they give you the best guarantee 
in the industry because they know they're never going to have to come out and do anything. Your insurance company is almost certainly going to give you a discount. Mine gave me 2% off the top of my bill because I have a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on my home and have had for many years, and all those years I've never called them once with a problem. And I've got a complex roof, three chimneys, balcony around, three sides upstairs, 120-year-old house. Let me tell you, Southwest Metal Roofing Systems took it in stride, but a beautiful roof on, very reasonable price, and I don't worry about my roof at all. And you've got lots of choices. You say you don't like the look of bright standing sea metal like we have here on Shades of Green. Well, you can have your choice of many different colors. You can actually have a roof that looks like slate or ceramic tile. There's so many choices out there, and they all come with that same great warranty, which you, then they all come with peace of mind. That's what the bottom line is. Is. Uh, energy efficiency, you'll save money on your energy bill every month. I just don't understand why anybody keeps replacing the roof over and over and over when you can do the job one time with Southwest Metal Roofing, roofing Systems at a very reasonable price and stop worrying about your roof forever. They do new construction as well as roof replacement, so give them a call to learn more. 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, back to the phone lines. Bob, Karen, and Mac and Tom, and Bob's up first. Man with a good name, good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. I have two quick questions for you. Okay. Apparently, apparently when I tried to save my orange tree, what I did is I put up the insulate but i kind of made a teepee where it was loose it was not touching the leaves that's not the correct way to do it is it it doesn't really matter um you well, know it, the wind blew it <laughs> well then in that case that wasn't the right way to do it uh you want to you want to do whatever it takes to you know to stabilize it uh i've done things like put a tomato cage around a small tree and then just you know wrap the insulate tightly around the tomato cage um, but, again, it's it's like putting your coat on. Uh, you can leave it relatively loose or you can zip it real tightly around you, and uh, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. Uh, now, this past week, I doubt that you've seen cold enough temperatures to do anything more than cosmetic damage, but uh, we all tend to learn after we've done it a time or two uh, to do what we have to do to secure it. I know uh, initially I used to always use clothespins to put it on, and then, and they had a windstorm that kind of blew the clothespins away. So uh, if it's in a real windy area, I may actually take, uh, you know, like a 12-penny nail or something like that and just kind of weave it back and forth through uh, to give it a little bit more strength and hanging on. But uh, it, there's not really a right and wrong way unless you get it so loose that the wind blows it off. Okay. And my other question, I talked to you last week, and you was giving me the brands of different type of oranges you was telling me that the one that i had here was probably not the correct one well you know there's you nothing like a satsuma yeah satsumas are a good choice and there are a lot of different satsumas uh again there's not a bad orange for this area but there are a lot of oranges that aren't cold hardy here that's the nice thing about the satsumas and you may see varieties like miho or sito or kimbro or bracken's brown baby i think is another one there there are a lot of different ones the old one is changsha which is still a hardy hardy satsuma it just has about 25 seeds in every little fruit but uh the satsumas tend to 
to be among the most cold-hardy and typically will go all the way down into the teens before they start having damage, whereas on the other hand, your navel oranges, your blood oranges, things like that, they're going to suffer if it gets very far into the 20s. So Satsumas are a good choice, but it's just simply that they will take more colds without damage. Okie dokie. Well, thank you, sir. That's what I needed to know. Well, I'm glad you called with good questions, and uh, you get in and have a good Sunday, Bob. We'll talk again. And you Karen are. is up next. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I, I have a question about orchids. I know okay. that's your favorite subject. Uh, <laughs> it's I, a very popular received, subject for me. Yes. I received an orchid last year, and it did real. It did beautiful. I, I repotted it in about a six-inch pot, and it's... It's thriving. It has four new nodules. I guess I'm not sure if that's what you call it or new growth on it, but it still has last year's stem sticking straight up. Do Uh I cut that off or? Is last year's stem, is it brown and crispy or does it still seem to have some life to it? It still has life to it. I thought it was going to bloom again, but it it created the bloom on the end and Uh it did nothing after that. Well, it still has the potential to when if you were to you know run your finger down that stem, you'd find the little what we call dormant nodes. They're like just this little kind of piece of tissue wrapped around a little hidden bud underneath, and yes. those those things can sit there for a year or two, and then suddenly decide that they're going to do one of two things. Sometimes they'll form a whole new plant there, roots and everything that you can break off and pot up and have another orchid to share with a friend. Uh, sometimes they will branch out and. Put put on more flowers, and sometimes you just sit there and eventually shrivel. But I tend to leave those old bloom spikes on there until they turn brown and crispy, and uh, it just depends on the overall strength of the plant. Now, if you repotted it into a good medium, if you are fertilizing it regularly, you're giving it all the potential to do something, to make a new plant or to make new flowers. I had an old friend that uh, had a phalaenopsis, which is what you have, he had this growing in a hanging basket, and granted he had a greenhouse for it, but I think that plant went for seven years and either had buds or uh, blooms on it uh, constantly for seven years. So the plants have the potential to be very, very rewarding to you, and there's not really any right or wrong. You can always cut it off if you want to, but you're potentially sacrificing some blooms or maybe even a new plant somewhere down the road. Okay, I'm I'm just tickled pink when I saw the little nun, uh stems or nodules or whatever you want to call it coming out. I was just like, yeah. You're doing it right. um, Well, I have to tell you, uh, many of those are probably going to be roots. They're going to be a real shiny, gelatinous-looking little green root tip that comes out. Some of them uh, may be additional flower spikes that are going to come out and bloom for you, but they all look the same when they first start out. They're just that little (laughs) bump on the side of the stem and... uh, uh, I guess a nodules as good a word as uh, as we could use, but at this point realize that some of them are going to make uh, uh, flower stems. Some of them are just going to turn into those roots. And don't worry when those roots go everywhere, because remember that in nature, this plant to be clinging to the side of a tree or a building or something like that, and it's to that plant's advantage to grow that root as long as it can and stretch it out as far as possible. So. Uh, It might grow all the way across your windowsill and halfway across the living room, but it doesn't mean it needs a bigger pot. It just means that in nature, it's used to just spreading its roots out over whatever surface it's growing on, and it's not a sign that it needs you to do anything else. 
Wonderful. Um, another question I have is, I'm not sure if I'm using the correct name. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have some two bushes, and I, I'm calling them baby's breath. They get the white flower in the spring. Okay. I, I thought they were baby's breath, but I may be incorrect. Now, well, my question is, can I, they're getting a little bit unruly. Can I cut them back, or am I going to sacrifice yeah, don't do it now. You're going to sacrifice flowers. Those would more correctly be called spirea, S-P-I-R-E-A, and they're sometimes called bridal veil, uh, which is not yeah. too far away from baby's breath. But baby's breath is always uh, oh, a little annual plant called gypsophilia. But what you're looking at, if you want to call it bridal veil, you can. But if you want to call it by its proper name, it's spirea, S-P-I-R-E-A, and uh, let it bloom first and then prune it if you need to. But it's one of those plants that blooms on wood that grew last fall so we don't want to prune it now or we're sacrificing spring flowers okie dokie good news and i just have to give a shout out to the freeze misers we purchased some <laughs> um, uh as stocking stuffers for our son-in-law and our son and of course us and i cannot say enough about them they are absolutely <laughs> wonderful Aren't love them love them love them and you would it love is. to know the guys that invented them. These are just good old country down-home boys from Stockdale, Texas, the Seguin area, with brilliant minds that saw a need and uh, had the, the chemical and uh, physically, you know, the, the background, the scientific background. And I know they worked at it for years, but virtually everything in those comes from right here in Texas. There's nothing comes from across the ocean. And... Uh, it's just nice people to do business with. I love doing business with nice people. And uh, the fellows that do the freeze miser, just you'd love to have them for your next door neighbor. Now, does it operate on air temperature or the water temperature? The water temperature. The water That's temperature. Okay. And right. and there are no wires, no batteries. Um, I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets, but there is a material inside of there that, in effect, changes consistency, say, changes from solid to liquid or liquid to solid or whatever, based on the temperature. And when the temperature of the water inside the hydrant reaches 37 degrees, uh, that's when it changes and starts letting water drip through so that it keeps the hydrant warm. But as soon as the... Uh, uh, as soon as the temperature goes back up again, then all of a sudden it shuts everything off and, you know, sits there and waits for it to get cold again. I just, it's such a, uh, it's just such a simple um, technique, so to speak. But uh, believe me, it took it took a lot of uh, incredible chemistry and engineering to put that together, you know, in a little device uh, to put on your hydrant like that. And uh, as I'm sure you've heard me say, if it's a hydrant that you use all the time, you just put a Y connector on there and put your hose on one side and your freeze miser on the other. You can put it on a water trough. Uh, and they use these things in a lot colder climate than we have here. So it just pleases me no end to know that it uh, did a good job for you, Karen. Excellent. I, I hope everybody listens to this and goes out and buys them before the next new freeze comes through. Well, so, I bet anyway, you there are a lot of people hope they're on your Christmas list next year. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure, Karen. Thank you very much for the call this morning. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>
All right, uh, let's talk for a minute about Green Grow Organic, Sam Sitterly and Company. And, you know, I have people that, uh, that do just the same thing for Sam's company. They take the time to call me and say, man, I'm glad you told me about Green Grow Organics. That's a wonderful company. And they're right. Green Grow Organics is uh, operated by good people who saw a need in the community and filled it and did it the right way. I mean, everything Sam's done for the past 30 years has been organic. And he just, uh, again, doesn't try to create a one-size-fits-all program. He works with people on a regular consultation basis. He will set up a program to come take care of things like composting application, if that's what your yard needs to be at its uh, maximum health, or he'll simply act sort of on a reactive basis. You call him when you have problems that you need his help in solving. Uh, he's, he's been doing it, like I say, for a lot of years. Extremely knowledgeable guy, probably the best in Texas when it comes to uh, knowing about compost tea, about microbial soil life, about regenerative uh, processes that you could be practicing in your own yard. You need to check out his website, Green Grow, spelled out G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. Uh, take a look at the program. If you think it's for you, give him a call, set up a consultation, be sure you understand any charges up front, and uh, let him look things over with you. And I would remind you, we're just getting real close to the time that we start having the little gall worms and lots of little different creatures that could be damaging the new foliage coming out on your trees. If that's been a problem in the past, not real sure what to do about it, and want somebody to come out and take a look with you, well, you now know the name. He is Sam Sitterly, and his company is Green Grow, G-R-O-W, Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, let's get straight back to these phone lines. And uh, Mac is up next. It's going to be Mac and Tom and Marilyn and Robin. Mac, good morning. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, now, I want to say something that I don't mean to speak out of term. Uh, when the fella called in on the Chinese tallow. Right. I was interested in that. And I looked up in uh, Howard Garrett's Plants for Texas. Uh-huh. And he said the seeds were poisonous. Hmm, okay. Uh, I, that that may be. I've seen birds eat them, and, uh, but now that you mention it, they are white, and many things that are white do have some toxicity to them. I don't believe that they are, well, let's just say that uh, I've never heard Dr. Kirby talk about a pet having a problem with them, so uh, obviously it's not the major issue that it is with uh, oleanders and some other things like that, but I appreciate you calling that to our attention, Mac. Uh, don't feel don't feel like you're speaking out of turn at all. Well, I, I appreciate that, and I have a couple of questions. Yes, sir. Well, one is a question, the other one is an observation that... I was wondering if you could shed some light on. Okay. Uh, my question is, I've planted some uh, onions and some turnips. Mm-hmm. And due to being busy and whatnot, I've been slightly neglectful on the... <laughs> You're an honest man. <laughs> well, I... It, it pays to come clean at times. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Every time. Uh, that's right, and I was going to uh, today water them, and uh, I wanted to ask you a question on this. I was going to—I talked to you before about uh, spraying some uh, spinosad mm-hmm. on it. You suggested to keep the ants off, and that has seemed sure. to work. 
But on account of the, uh, I wanted to treat them with some spinosad, the turnips with some spinosad. Right. But also wanted to uh, fertilize today. And what I was wondering about the fertilizer was I thought I would foliar, uh, put it on foliar, in a foliar er I guess I said that right, uh, manner on the turnips. Right. And I was wondering if I could uh, put the fertilizer on first and then go right over it with the spinosad. You can certainly do that. There wouldn't be any problem at all there. Okay. Now, I have, have no problem with foliar feeding. It's a good practice in a lot of cases, but don't make it your only source of nutrition because what we've discovered is that if you give plants everything they need through their leaves, then they don't tend to form a very good root system. So I'm well, not a big fan of constant foliar feeding, but uh, as an occasional thing, I think is absolutely wonderful and it produces great results. Well, that's what I, I wanted. To, I know you had said that before, and I, I like to feed stuff through the roots myself. Mm -hmm. But yeah. these here looked a little, had suffered a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, well, that takes care of that. I mean, I, I, I enjoy a liquid diet sometime, but I love a good steak as well. <laughs> well, now, there you go. <laughs> uh, my next question was, well, it was an observation. And I, I've seen something kind of curious, and that is uh, I have seen along the road in uh, culverts, and I've also seen a few, a little bit along ponds that you can see from the highway. Right. Reeds growing. Mm -hmm. And I got to thinking that all the years that I've driven, you know, we usually drive in the same areas for decades. Right. I had not seen these reeds. And then it seems like here probably, I guess, in the probably last four or five years, I've seen reeds growing mm -hmm. at several culverts. And I saw uh, some by a, uh, a pond. Now, I don't know if the individual planted them or not, mm -hmm. but I have seen them along culverts, and uh, I've seen uh, some along uh, on a drainage ditch type sure. thing. Sure. And I just wondered why was the reason that I hadn't seen those for years. Well, you have to have you have to have two things for any plant, any situation like that to get started. You have to have the right environment. And then you have to have a source of the plant, uh, usually a seed or something like that. And in the case of most things that we will call reeds and sedges and things like that, these are plants which like a very, very moist environment. And if uh, people are keeping their bar ditches clean and the water never stands, then you don't have the right environment for things like that to grow. Uh, if things don't get left clean, if we get the kind of rains that bring in silt and sediment and you get these things kind of clogged up and then all of a sudden uh, when it rains instead of everything running off in two hours, it doesn't run off for two weeks, then all of a sudden you've created a situation for 
an aquatic type of plant like that to grow. And then all it takes is for a duck to come in and land there, carrying the seeds on its feet, or for a big rain to, you know, wash, you know, something like that down from potentially miles away in a whole different watershed. But waterfowl are probably the most common way that things like that get spread around. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, we have uh, some little aberrations in weather, and things tend to be a little bit wetter this year than they have been. Now, back in 2011, which was the driest year in weather records, uh, you didn't see a lot of reeds growing anywhere. But uh, just, again, you create the right environment for it, and then you introduce the proper seed, and uh, assuming, you know, that it that it will t- tolerate temperature and things like that, you may have all sorts of things grow. Uh, I've seen the same things. I've seen cattails where I've never seen them before. Unfortunately, there are some very noxious invasive species like giant salvinia that have been brought into many of our ponds and things like that. And then we have a you know, a real issue trying to get rid of them. So all I can say is you're a very observant man, and uh, now you know the reason that things like that sometimes show up. Well, I appreciate that. That's interesting. I I know that this this property that I live on, it never has had any uh, hackberry trees on it. Mm-hmm. And one day, uh, in some thick growth, uh, above the stock tank, I stumbled on and I thought, lo and behold, there was a hackberry tree mm-hmm. growing that was a nice, it was a hackberry, but it was a pretty shaped tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought, well, now that's the first. And then later that tree died because there's a lot of backwater uh-huh. that uh, that's in that area. It doesn't hurt the mesquites at all, but it, it did hurt the uh, uh, tree. Yeah, that yeah. that hackberry, and it's interesting how stuff like that is is moved around. Oh, well, yeah. it's fascinating, and I I hope to get out today. I hope the pretty weather gets down here like it is at your place. Well, I tell you, and that's you know, you just are an observer of nature. No one in the world will get bored if they just open their eyes and look at what's going on around them and, and there's just so many things uh, a lot of people don't realize it because they don't get out at night uh, and walk as I do sometimes but uh, we we have a big issue with porcupines in the hill country that we didn't used to have porcupines have their favorite trees and they have killed out a lot of uh, gumbumelia they've killed out a lot of things and people say why are they all dying and you go out and look at the trees because you got the damn porcupines and they're chewing the bark off of them at night so <laughs> nature is, is yeah, nature is just ever changing, and uh, you just you'll you'll never be bored as long as you spend your your time your free time watching it. And if uh, I can take a guess at what's causing things, it's always good to hear from you, Mac. Uh, I'll let you go so I can get a break in here and then talk to Tom and Marilyn and Robin. I get to talk about the freeze miser officially, <laughs> and you just heard one of our callers do about as good a commercial for the freeze miser as I possibly could because it is just a truly remarkable device until you've seen it work uh, you know it's just it's it's amazing how something so simple with no wires no batteries you know nothing caustic or toxic 
toxic in there. It's simply a little device. You screw on the hydrant and turn the water on. Nothing happens. Nothing comes out unless the water in the hydrant, you know, gets down to 39 degrees, at which point you might start worrying about the faucet freezing. Then that freeze miser starts dripping the water out. Now, a couple of other things that we've learned about the freeze misers. Uh, if you've got a garden hose that's uh, up to about 50 feet long and you don't want that hose to freeze, you got a freeze miser on the end of the hose. Now, realize you're pressurizing the hose. You've got to have a hose that won't explode if you leave the water turned on all the time. But up within a reasonable length of hose, you can have a freeze miser on the end of it, or better still, put a Y connector on the end, put a nozzle on one side of that, and put your freeze miser on the other, and then you'll know you can go out and turn on the water in the morning and water, even if everybody else's hose is frozen solid. The freeze miser works extremely well on a water trough, uh, you know, same sort of principle. You put it on a Y connector and uh, uh, the, the float valve keeps your water trough full, and then when uh, the water gets too cold, Freeze miser protects the uh, pipage there. It drips the water right back into your water trough. A lot of times that water is warm enough that it'll keep ice from forming on the surface and it lets your birds or your livestock uh, get to things a whole lot easier. They just, Freeze Miser is an incredible invention. It's available at fine nurseries, fine hardware stores, farm and ranch stores. You're not going to find it in the box stores. Uh, they love dealing with independent businessmen since that's what they are too. But if you've not heard of the Freeze Miser, you might want to check Check it out, because it could sure save you some expensive plumbing and repairs, and plus it's just fun to see something that works so well. The Freeze Miser, M-I-S-E-R. Check it out at freezemiser.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on, uh, <laughs> the weather just can't make up its mind. Now I'm looking at a mixture of clouds and sun out there, but sure is a nice temperature. I'll tell you that, considering that we are well into January now. Back to the phone lines, and Tom is next. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Morning, sir. I've got some beautiful Esperanza plants, which are going dormant, and I've been told I should cut them off, cut off the branches. Is that correct? Uh, that's uh, totally up to whether you want to cut the branches off or not. <laughs> it, well, it, just, uh, uh, you're, it you're, seems to me uh, uh, a negative thing to do, you know, just, uh, uh, and the same thing, I've got some uh, Pride of Barbados, and they say do that also, cut it off. Well, in the case of your Pride of Barbados, it probably has frozen back to the ground. Now, I live in Bernie. Uh, I'm colder than San Antonio. My Pride of Barbados has never failed to come back. But uh, in the case of your Pride of Barbados, it is not going to come out from those old stems. That's dead wood sticking up there, but it's kind of like your hair. You can let it go long and shaggy like mine happens to be right now, or you can go to the barbershop beaning your pruning shears and cut it down and make it look a little bit uh, better. But but it is like cutting your fingernails or cutting your hair. You're just cutting off wood so the plant doesn't know whether you've done anything or not. And on your Pride of Barbados, that is totally your choice. Now, on your Esperanza, um, the, it's a little bit different story because in just looking at it, it's hard to tell whether those limbs are actually frozen or whether they've just dropped their leaves. In most cases, with the kind of weather that we've had in San Antonio area, they simply drop their leaves. And if you want a bigger plant this spring, it just 
do a thing. And assuming it doesn't get any colder, those leaves or those limbs that are bare now will cover themselves with leaves and yellow flowers uh, in the spring, and the plant will be twice as big by the time uh, you know the growing season is over. On the other hand, if you say, "Gosh, that thing's already six feet tall, and I don't want a ten-foot shrub out there," then you can go ahead and cut it back because you're certainly not going to harm it by cutting it back, but I'm sure not going to tell you you have to do it. And if you want it to be as big as possible, as wide as possible, many flowers as possible, uh, then wait and see. What typically happens is Oh, let's say we've got a we've got an Esperanza out there that's uh, and and you're left with a ten foot tall trunk uh, through the winter months. We do to get some cold weather, but not just outrageously cold. I'm going to leave it until spring, and let's say it starts coming out at the three foot mark, and there's seven foot of bare stem left above it. What that tells me is okay, the upper seven feet froze. I might as well go ahead and cut them back, and I'll just let it come out from down below. But it's hard to tell how far they froze them back. So uh, I I tend to leave them now you know weather like we had last february they froze to the ground <laughs> to the level of the mulch no question on that and you might as well cut them off but this year uh, kind of weather we've had so far i doubt if you've really had them freeze completely so whether you cut them back whether you leave them like they are that is strictly your choice okay the other question i've got as i've got a problem with i call them leaf cutter ants or harvester ants they can strip a tree in a night Okay, yeah, and, and those are those I've been are wrapping aluminum foil around and putting tangle foot on mm-hmm. uh, to keep them off. Right. My question is: Is this wrapping the aluminum foil around the bark hurting the the uh, no. tree? No, not at all. You could use aluminum foil, which is very convenient. You could use plastic wrap. The tangle foot has some, I guess, it's some sort of solvent in there that I don't think is good for the bark. Of trees, I've seen it make some real kind of weird-looking gnarly growth on there. So the aluminum foil is just uh, to keep the tangle foot from getting on the live bark, uh, but it is not bad for the tree in any way. And what you have are leafcutter ants. You identified them exactly. The harvester ant is a totally different ant, and it doesn't harvest live growing leaves. And uh, uh, they're actually very important for very many different things in the environment. Leaf cutting ant, the ants are not actually eating the leaves, but as you so accurately observe, they can strip every leaf off of a tree overnight. They take those leaves and put them in an underground chamber, and then they actually eat a fungus that grows on the leaf. So they're not my friend. <laughs> I don't worry about them out in the pastures, but I sure don't want them, uh, you know, around my house or my garden. And that tangle foot is. Uh, uh, easy, non-toxic way to keep them from getting after your trees. Now, it's a problem when they start going after your roses or your begonias or something like that where you can't apply the tangle foot so easily, but you're doing it exactly right. Well, I have a 15-foot high olive tree. They stripped it completely in one night. Oh, yes, sir. I've seen it. I've seen them yeah, do the no. same thing on rose bushes. I've seen them do the same thing on crepe myrtles. Um, they have their favorites. Uh, they know which leaves are going to grow the best fungus for them, and uh, they they can do an immense amount of damage. The paper companies and the lumber product companies over in East Texas have spent millions and millions of dollars finding, trying to find ways to control them, and uh, they haven't come up with anything better yet. And so uh, they're one of those things that are uh, they're just with us. Okay, last question. I've got five acres of land. I've been here for 20 years. I have never seen grass burrs as bad as they are this year. Yeah. Any suggestions? Grass burrs, 
Grass burrs are a weak, weak grass. Mother Nature hates bare ground, and when you bear it, got bare ground, she's going to send in something green to grow on top of it. Last winter was cold enough that it uh, really set back a lot of our... Uh, you know, our our tougher native grasses, our Bermudas and uh, things like that. And uh, the grass burrs have been, you know, were just horrendous this past year. And they're probably going to be the same thing this spring. Now, around, it's hard to do five acres, but if you've got areas that you uh, that you want to eliminate them, uh, put some compost out. I did this. I had an area of my front yard where... Uh, the grass burrs were so thick the dogs wouldn't walk into it. I put about uh, half an inch of compost on in the fall. This has been about five, six years ago, and I went from having a, a thousand grass burr plants to having about two plants the entire next year, and I've never had a problem since. So uh, I think there's something magic. I think the compost works as a pre-emergent herbicide, and then you let your native grasses and things thicken up, and it hopefully won't be as much of a problem. But uh, yeah, grass burrs are just Mother Nature's answer to bare ground and Unfortunately, the weather has really given them a you know a big benefit this past year. Okay, well I appreciate your help. Have a good day now. You do the same. I appreciate your call, and I do thank you. All right, we're only about 35 seconds here from news time, and that doesn't give us time to talk to Marilyn at this point, but right after the news, it'll be Marilyn and Robin and Don, and uh, potentially you as well. Sun's back out, looking more and more like a sunny afternoon and wonderful temperature out there, so hope you're going to get out and get some things done in the garden. Unfortunately, probably pull up a few things that froze earlier this week. Boy, that was just not one nice what Mother Nature did to us, but, you know, it happens, and uh, we'll talk about about that and so much more right here on uh, The Garden Show on KTSA Radio in beautiful, sunny San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, let's get back to gardening as the sunshine pours in the window here. It's going to be a beautiful afternoon, and I sure hope you're going to get out and enjoy it. Uh, looks like Marilyn, Robin, Dawn, and Wayne. Those are my next four callers, and Marilyn's up first. Good morning, Marilyn. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a good morning. I have a seven foot fiddly fig with two stems coming out. Okay. Uh, if you break it into thirds, the top third has leaves, the middle third has nothing, and the bottom third has nothing, and it's in a fourteen inch pot. Okay. I understand that you can cut that and reroot it, but I'm just wondering, can you tell me, give me some tips on that? Well, you know, the uh, fiddly fig is by nature a tree. In tropical areas, it would want to grow 50 feet tall and 30 feet wide. Uh, it is a very, very bright light plant. And typically, if it's not getting as much light as it needs or if it gets a little bit dry, it, you know, drops some of those lower leaves. Now, if you just want it to be full again, increase your fertilizing, increase your amount of light, and you will get more growth coming out at the base. Now, if you would like to reduce the size and would like to have a new plant as well, then we do this not this time of year, but in the middle of the summer when it's hot, usually July, August are the best months to do it, we can, in effect, create a pre-rooted cutting. A woody plant, like a ficus of any sort, uh, you, you can't take a very big cutting or it just shrivels and dies because it dehydrates before it can form roots. But what you could do with your fiddle leaf or your ficus benjamina or your dracaena marginata or whatever, uh, we go down at the point somewhere 
up and down that bare part of the trunk, we're going to gouge a bit of the bark. We're just going to take a knife and we're just going to strip a little bit of bark off the side of it. And then we're going to take some of moist uh, sphagnum moss, the stuff that's used to line hanging baskets, and we're going to wrap a big glob of that around the wound that we made on the side of the tree. And then we're going to wrap that up tightly with either plastic wrap or with aluminum foil. And something in the plant's way of recognizing things says, hmm, I must have fallen off and, and fallen on the ground uh, and I'm going to put out some new roots and I'm going to start growing again. So what happens, and it usually takes about six weeks uh, during the hot time of the year, uh, the your fiddle leaf will start putting out roots into this clump of moss that you wrapped around the trunk. Once it has you know a good bunch of roots established, you just feel the foil or the plastic back and you'll see you know nice little white roots growing everywhere. You in effect have a pre-rooted cutting and at that point you can uh, you know, cut it off at that point, take the foil or the plastic away, leave the leave the sphagnum around it, then pot it up and you've got a whole new rooted cutting so you have about 99.99% chance it's going to do fine. The base of the plant that you cut it away from, it will start branching out and putting on, you know, new limbs, new trunks, new leaves and you've got a fuller plant behind and now you've got an additional plant. Some people would take that additional plant and plant it back in the same pot to make it fuller. Other people would put it in a separate pot and just have a whole new fiddly fig. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Thank you. If you want to, uh, if you want to look I it up, I... huh? If you want to look it up, it's called air a i r air layering. Uh, it's kind of uh, there's an old nursery practice that. Um, my grandfather did that they call true layering and that's where they take shrubs and things like that and they actually just bend a branch down to the ground and put a brick or a you know u-shaped thing or something rather to put it down on the ground and then put a couple of sho- shovels full of dirt on top of it and let it root and then come back in the spring and cut that plant away and that's what they call air that's what they call layering but in the case of the tropical plants like what you want to do on your fiddle leaf that is air layering and it's simply done up up above the ground and it just basically creates a pre-rooted cutting and uh, it's easy to do if you're a little patient and uh, you need to give it a try sometime it's lots of fun okay okay well well, it's been outside and it gets lots of sunshine but Uh i guess it's not direct sunshine Um, well it would love direct sunshine yeah Yeah, it it does or does it it does love direct sunshine. Indoors, there's absolutely no way you could give a fiddle leaf too much sun. I mean, it would love to sit in the sunniest window in your home. Now, if you moved it outside for the summer months, probably don't want to give it afternoon sun, although if it got used to it, it'd be happy with it. But uh, indoors, uh, the more direct sunlight it gets, the fuller and thicker and bushier that plant's going to stay. Well, they usually stay outside, and it's all eastern uh, side a porch, and I yeah. only bring them in when we're going to have a freezer cover them up. But it just was getting so long and leggy that it was falling over all the time. So um, <laughs> I just figured something a little shorter would be good. Well, so, then um, uh, the bad okay. news is you have to wait till summer to do it. The good news is uh, it'll work very well for you. You'll get a bushier plant, you'll get a new plant, and you will have had a fun new experience. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too, Marilyn. Thank you. All right, next up is Robin. Good morning, Robin. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Speak with you. My pleasure. Um, I am discovering 
the all the fun you can have with mist flower. It's invasiveness. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh my goodness. So my question is, I have it. Um, I had it planted. It was it. It attracts butterflies like oh, you yeah. wouldn't believe. Oh, Monarch. Yes, I would yeah. believe it's probably that is probably I would say the number one butterfly attracting plant that you could put in the garden. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, and uh, we were enjoying it for a couple years, and it just got completely out of control. Um, I planted it in the wrong spot, and it just started taking over. So I have I have spent quite a bit of time digging it out, and um, it's it's almost I would compare it to trying to get rid of Bermuda grass. <laughs> Well, it doesn't make the underground runners that Bermuda grass does. So it, it's, I think it's still easier than Bermuda grass, but it is right up there, right up there on the invasive list. Uh, you're exactly right. The butterflies love it, but, uh, uh, it's one of those things they say, give it an inch and it'll take a yard, your yard. And that's what it's oh, trying my to do. Goodness. Yeah. When I was digging it out, there was just, it was, uh, probably a three inch thick mat of underground you know uh runners and stuff oh, yeah. and it had been there a year was, or two hadn't it yes it was it was um anyway next to this flower bed is a crushed granite path mm-hmm. and it's it's starting to poke out through the crushed granite path sure and i, I really don't want to scrape the granite back and dig that out too uh would spraying vinegar Vinegar on soil, but you're, you're, you're one step ahead of me. That's just about what I was about to tell you about. It uh, uh, Wait until it starts making its new green growth in the spring. It doesn't do any good to spray when it's dormant like it will be through the winter months. But uh, anywhere you see that new green starting to come up, just uh, hit it with vinegar and orange oil, and about 20 minutes later it will be burned up and, and shriveling away. Will it continue to grow underground even though I'm not allowing it to come out of the ground? Probably, <laughs> it's uh, uh, you know it. it uh, you can always put a barrier down. I mean, you could put a little Ryerson steel edging down. You could, uh, you know, put down something like a piece of uh, weed block fabric, which I don't recommend for most uses. Or, uh, you know, there you could you could bury some cardboard or something like that. There are a lot of things you could do to slow it down, or you could simply get out there once a month with a grubbing hoe and say, "I told you not to grow here." But um, it, uh, you know, the the more you spray it, the more you will kill it back. But as long as you have a living plant and no barrier to keep it from coming back, it's gonna, you know, it's it's just kind of like a, it's just kind of like a bad neighbor. They're gonna be there until you run them off. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, you're 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 telling me what I was already. I, I didn't want to accept it, but I I guess I guess uh, the battle is still on. Well, the battle's on, but just think about how many butterflies you're making happy. And uh, uh, what you can do is, you know, you tell your friends, hey, I've got this wonderful plant the butterflies <laughs> love, and you can have some of it if you want to come dig it up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, well, that that helps, that uh, orange oil and vinegar. The other thing is I'm out in Bergheim. Yes, sir. Um, and I planted uh, a bunch of the Texas Legend onions that, Mm-hmm. Um, I did not cover during any of the freezes that we've had. Right. And um, 
I didn't want to put the cover on because I didn't want to smash the tops down. Sure, sure. Um, anyway, um, they're not looking so good. A lot of the leaves have turned white and just mm-hmm. kind of, you know, melted to the ground. And, you know, they, they look like they're struggling. Um, got to with, 19 degrees in Bergheim the other morning, which uh, I experienced it, and uh, we had the same thing in Bernie. And uh, most of those onions are going to come back out. Um, it's certainly not too late to plant a few more, but I think you'll find that in a couple of weeks, the great majority of them will start putting out those those leaves that just got translucent. They're frozen and gone. But uh, there should be, on a high percentage of your little transplants, uh, they're still alive and they have the potential to put on some more green foliage. Would, uh, would hitting them with some molasses kind of boost your... If I were going to, if I were going to spray anything, it probably would be has to grow plant. Uh, molasses is a great, great activator of things in the soil, but it's not a fertilizer. Uh, if I were going to okay. hit it with something, I'd probably be using has to grow plant or the new Medina fish blend fertilizer. Uh, molasses wouldn't hurt anything, but I think in this choice, your fertilizer would do a better job more quickly. Okay, okay, very good. Well, that that answers all my questions. I sure appreciate it. Is the sunshine out in Bergheim this morning? Yes, yes. It was it was miserable <laughs> yesterday, but I'm glad to see that sun coming out. Yeah, it's going to be a gorgeous day. You get out and enjoy, and you call me anytime you have questions, Robin. It's always good to hear from you. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Let's. Uh, this is actually, uh, Chris, I think this is my last uh, live break of the show. But once again, I get to talk about somebody that I really, really enjoy, have enjoyed knowing for years now. And that's Dr. Mark Williamson. You know, Dr. Staffel was one of the most brilliant men I've ever known. And he knew as he was getting older, he needed to find somebody with his capabilities to take over his practice. He went through a lot of people. And uh, the man he chose, Dr. Mark Williamson, and what a good choice he made. Dr. Williamson is, there's just so many good things I can tell you about him. He is an outstanding dentist, but above that, he's a wonderful man. He's a family man. He does not believe in corporate medicine. It's not run them through as fast as you can and charge them as much as you can. He will take the time to get to know you, to understand your mouth, to set up a plan that will ensure you the best oral health you'll ever have for the rest of your life, and you're going to start thinking of him as a friend instead of just your dentist. And even if it's a complex, uh, more serious problem, implant dentistry and things like that, he's not going to send you out to some specialist. He's going to take care of the problem right there in his office, and that's going to save you time and money. And plus, it's just such a welcoming environment. You prefer sedation dentistry? Yes, he does. He follows on with the same techniques that uh, Dr. Staffel developed. It just it, it, It's not a one-size-fits-all dental practice. He is there to provide you with the dental care you need in an atmosphere that is just truly welcoming. His staff is just about as wonderful as he is himself. And if you want to find out what I'm talking about, you just give him a call. 210-341-2569. It's 210-341-2569. Why not get 2022 off to a great start when it comes to keeping your mouth and your oral health in great shape? It will add years to your life overall. That's uh, Dr. Mark Williamson. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. Dawn is up next. Good morning, Dawn. Good morning, Bob. Beautiful day. You're right. Off to a good start today. It's a beautiful Sunday out there. 
Yes. Okay, so I have a question about a tea plant. Okay. I bought a beautiful tea plant from Shades of Green at the beginning of the spring. It was gorgeous. And that thing has just flourished. It's about four and a half feet tall now. Mm-hmm. It bloomed right after Thanksgiving. It has three, um, you know, three different plants coming out. All right. three of them bloomed. It was absolutely gorgeous. Well, now it's not looking too too well. I I wrapped it, of course, you know, mm-hmm. loosely, and you know, protected it, and it it it's just not looking very well. Is it going to come back? What? Oh, yeah. Is there something else I should do with it? Uh, you know, more than anything, you just need a little patience and uh, a lot of warm weather. The uh, the tea plant, spelled T-I, of course, is properly called mm-hmm. Cordylin, C-O-R-D-Y-L-I-N-E, if you want to look it up. And it is very much a tropical plant. It starts shivering when it gets to 65 degrees. And while right. you certainly saved its life, it wasn't happy you know, earlier this week when we got down into the low 20s. And uh, what you've got is just some cosmetic damage on it, and it's probably going to look a little worse before it looks better. But it will certainly put on new growth in the spring, uh, come about the middle of March, 1st of April. If you say, well, I want to cut off all these old ugly leaves, you can certainly do that and let it put on its uh, beautiful new brightly colored leaves. But uh, it's it's just a wimp. It just doesn't like temperatures uh that that even get below you know 60 65 degrees so uh you're not a failure it just simply got a little (laughs) bit too cold and uh your plant's going to do fine and and grow right out of it you just need to keep fertilizing watering giving it the brightest sunlight you can uh would be nice if you had a way to bring it inside if it you know got as cold as it did this past week but uh that's kind of ancient history now but it just it's one of those plants that is so sensitive that it's just hard to do enough short of building a greenhouse over it to really keep it happy out of doors but the good news is it will regrow quickly in the spring okay good now the pot is way too heavy to take <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and it's way too big <laughs> okay uh, my second question is um the sweet potato vines i had them growing out of pots um on either side of my pool they did a great job they were beautiful now, of course, they've died back, and I have all those little, um, you know, the tubers in the soil. Do I mm-hmm. need to take all those out, or will they come back? Most years, they will come back. Uh, okay. Now, once again, we've got a long time left in winter, and right, uh, as right. we learned last year, February can be a bitterly cold month, so right, uh, right. there's there's no guarantee at this point, but okay. unless we have long, long prolonged rains and the soil just stays saturated, unless we get some extremely critically cold temperatures without snow on the ground to protect it, um, right. your, your potato vine is going to come back out and grow like a weed when it warms up okay. this spring. Okay, well, that's why I put it in pots and not in my flower beds, because I knew that it's pretty invasive. So, okay, well, those were my two questions. I sure appreciate your time. Well, very questions they are, Don. And uh, remember, raised up in pots. Now, uh, it's it, they're more sensitive to cold damage if we do have a, a really bitterly cold spell. So be prepared to cover those pots or wrap them up or, you know, just okay. bury them with dry leaves or something like that if uh, the weather does turn bitterly cold. But uh, it's something that should certainly come back and grow well for you in the spring. So you call me if you have any more questions. Great. Thank you so much, Bob. Have a great day. You do the same. It's my pleasure. All right. uh, Wayne is up next. Good morning, Wayne. 
Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Uh, got a got a question uh, that that uh, an earlier caller uh, kind of sparked in my head when he started talking about sticker birds. I've got about yeah. a two acre garden, uh, two acre plot. It used to be a garden. It's good soil. It's a good, mm-hmm. nice sandy loam, but it's I, you know, I've not done anything with it. I've just I've just now getting to the point where I've got a tractor, disc care, and all that sort of thing. So I've I've got plenty of equipment. I'm going to start spraying all my all my property with compost tea, molasses, and all that stuff. Finally, Good for you. And uh, and uh, so I guess what I want to know is that that two acre garden plot. I like to treat it a little bit differently and get it ready to where I can really start having a nice garden. Uh-huh. And uh, and so what, what what's the best way to start attacking all those native grasses and stuff that are out there, like the sandbirds that come back. Well, native grasses are one thing, sandburrs are something totally different. Sandburrs totally die completely in the winter months, and then they sprout back from those blasted little uh, sticker burrs that you have. So uh, it's, you know, we're, we're dealing with two different things. The sticker burrs are a pain in the grass, as we like to say, but you can control them. Uh, you can, you know, use something as simple as a push-pull hoe or something like that, uh, you know, in the growing season. And uh, they're really, it takes a little bit of work, but you can certainly get them under control. You can go around and spot spray with orange oil and vinegar. They're, to me, sticker burrs are one of the least problems out there because they really are relatively easy to control. It's just such a painful thing if you don't get them under control. Your native grasses, on the other hand, are... Uh, really tough. They are really tenacious, and uh, you can root plow them. You can rake out as you know much of the material as you can. What I tend to do in my bigger garden, and I've I've kind of reduced the area that I garden intensively just for not enough hours in the day. But in my bigger garden, what I've always done is I wanted to expand it. I would go out and buy this nasty weed block fabric, which I hate. But then where I wanted to get rid of the native grass and reclaim it for my own uh, cantaloupes or whatever I happen to be planting there, I will go ahead and lay down a you know three-foot wide strip or however wide uh, that weed block is. I'll put it down, I'll pin it down to the ground, and I will let it stay there for the full season. And it will totally destroy whatever's underneath it, and it'll turn the soil to a nasty mess underneath it. But at the end of the growing season, I'll go back and pull that weed block up and that area even though I'm going to need to add some compost and other things to get it really happy again uh, but those native grasses are gone and compared to get out in there with a grubbing hoe over and over compared to constantly spraying with more vinegar and orange oil that's the one place that I will use something like that weed block fabric and uh, um, and again it just depends on how you know how active you want to get with this you you can buy this stuff up to 16 feet wide you could you know cover up an immense area and in effect solarize it with it this summer but my advice to anybody who suddenly has a new patch of ground to turn into a garden is do it gradually so that it stays fun because i just in my lifetime i've seen so many people that tried to do too much at one time stop being fun and started turning into work and that's what what gardening that should not be that way gardening should still be fun if it turns into work your garden's too big sure uh, well, is 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 using a disc carrot to to till it up and and over a period of time, good thing. I mean, I try to stay away from the tilling, 
Yeah. But uh, is 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 doing it long term like that and just building the soil and not like you say keep the garden at a manageable level is is that a is that an op, a good option or are you it's, are you hurting the soil more? You're you're hurting the soil. Uh, okay. there, there are two things wrong with increased tillage. Uh, number one, you're bringing up weed seeds that have probably been lying there for 20 years and weren't going to cause you any problem until you suddenly brought them up on the surface. But most importantly, when you till, whether, you know, and it's not as bad uh, deep root plowing as it is with the disc harrow, but uh, even disking it, when you bring your organic material up onto the surface of the soil, it oxidizes. It turns, it, it simply goes turns into carbon dioxide and goes away that's why you know everybody can blame cars all they want to but the biggest problem in this country with uh increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is the fact that the blaster modern farmer which is the worst misnomer in the entire world they're running that tractor through the field turning the soil over six times a year and those are the guys that are putting the carbon dioxide back in the air and if you're looking for a fun book to read uh it's one that uh, a good friend of mine gave me a couple weeks ago and i just got around to sitting down and most of the way through it now but it's called grain by grain and it's about a montana wheat farmer that uh well it just it's it's his journey through going from being a chemical farmer to being a man who is into regenerative agriculture and uh, it'd be a fascinating read for you i think you would absolutely love it it's called grain by grain but um no uh tilling the soil uh is the worst possible thing you can do as far as destroying the organic material that you're trying to build well that's good to know because i mean the main reason i bought that disc hair was just because i've got a bunch of hogs i've got to deal with and oh, straighten yeah. out the, the mess that they've made so i that's really the reason i bought that disc arrow yeah just well everybody needs a good that. disc arrow and uh a good uh in my case mini 14 ar-15 whatever whatever does the job for you but uh uh yeah hogs are the bane of the hill country but no disc arrow used properly um you can actually use it for some weed control but uh you're actually hurting the soil rather than improving it it's not what i'd call it's not a horrible practice but uh neither it is something that's real sustainable either Right, right. And I will look that book up. That sounds like a very interesting read. I've, oh, you'll I mean, be fascinated I've, I've, by it. Yeah, that and compost tea. I'm trying to learn everything I can because I've, I've got that sprayer just so I could do that stuff. So, Well, I sure thank well, you for the information. Bob, Bob's Bob. book on grain by grain, it'll it'll get you thinking. That's the most important thing. I mean, he's a, a Montana wheat farmer, and uh, what he grows and what he's doing is not going to work in South Texas, but it will get you thinking about the principles it will get you looking at things in a whole different life, and it will make a a better farmer, make a better gardener out of you. You know, it's, uh, you sound like a guy with an active mind, and I think you really enjoy it, Wayne. I hope you let me know what you think of it. I'll do that. Thank you very much, Bob. You have a great day. You do the same, sir. Thank you. Goodbye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Well, let's get back to the phone lines. Uh, Tom, Angie, Mark, those are my next three callers, and Tom is up first. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Bob, got a question and uh, maybe another one after that. But, uh, you know, a few months ago we had that real heavy rain. I I'm on the river. I think we got about eight inch, seven, eight inches in about three yep. hours. And, yep. you know, water was off the banks. And um, 
really flooded, came out, and when it was all said and done, I've got somebody planted a whole bunch of bamboo that I'm trying to keep <laughs> off my property. Yeah. Uh, and and all this residue got caught up in the bamboo from, mm-hmm. you know, from everything. And beautiful stuff. Can I use that in my compost? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Be careful as you go through it because you may find fire ants and scorpions and centipedes and uh, uh, various life forms that you did not anticipate. But what you're looking at is just good raw organic material and it would be perfect in your compost pile. Now, the soils and things that wash up tend to have a little bit more problem with crusting and things like that, but the actual organic material that got caught up in the tops of the bamboo man that's just somebody just brought you a bunch of free mulch exactly that's exactly how i look at it and it's well, you beautiful have a positive stuff. outlook and i encourage that good hey uh, another thing are you how familiar and, and how do you recommend uh variegated meyer lemons variegated meyers regular yeah, they're they're a novelty. They're something unusual. I mean, typically a variegated foliage has less chlorophyll, so technically it's not as strong as a solid green leaf. But it's a whole lot more interesting. Um, your variegated Meyer lemon uh, will have a little bit uh, tougher skin on it, but uh, the lemons, if you closed your eyes, you wouldn't know any difference in flavor. Uh, again, it's just not quite as vigorous a plant. I don't think it bears quite as heavily, uh, but it's a pretty thing to look at. And it's, uh, you know, regular Myers lemon's kind of ordinary. Variegated is, you know, people some say, hey, what's that? So uh, choice is yours. Yeah, look- it looks, I have had it for a few years, it looks like a watermelon in a way yeah. when it's all done. Yeah, I happened to be at your place a few years ago, late on a Sunday, looking for Meyer lemon. The only uh-huh. thing you had left on that day were uh, <laughs> variegated, and uh, I bought it, and it, I mean, it. it's pretty, it grows well. I've gotten a lot of lemons. I just wondered what you... Uh, you know, you don't recommend them above. You'd recommend the others before. Well, I recommend what you like. You know, it's uh, <laughs> it's not a bad or plant in any get. way. But if 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 you're out to maximize the number of lemons and the juice you get, no, you're going to get more out of a green plant. But if you enjoy having somebody come by and say, "Wow, what's that? I've never seen anything like that," you put a big smile on your face and uh, tell them what it is. Great. The, the last thing is you recommend it. You said that the uh, green onions possibly will come back. Mine yeah. all died back. Same thing with parsley? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I'm going to say probably. Uh, but again, did you plant parsley from seed or from plants? From plants. You know, I, what About I'm doing in my ago. own garden, I'm leaving stuff that I'm not sure of, but I'm planting some more of it. I mean, my chart, my chard took a big hit, and I'm so mad I didn't harvest the day before. And But I'm not yeah, pulling the plants up. I'm cutting off the frozen leaves, but I'm sticking in a few new plants just to hedge my bets. Yeah, that sounds like the thing to do. Thank you, sir. <laughs> gardeners gardeners learn that the hard way sometimes so tom you get out and have a wonderful day and i appreciate the call this morning thank you sir all right uh, next up is angie good morning angie good morning bob good morning uh, i i 
covered up most everything in my garden, but I thought that my Brussels sprouts would hang out in 20s, but they didn't. Yeah. And I was wondering if that's going to upset my Brussels sprout production. You know, it's just going to be wait and see. Um, I, I've seen Brussels sprouts go to zero degrees without any damage. What really hurt this year was we had all those beautiful 70 and 80 degree days, and then we got hit with the real heavy cold. So right. I would not be at all surprised if your Brussels sprouts come out and do just fine. Uh, but the foliage took a pounding, and I suspect yeah. that, uh, uh, we probably will not get as many little Brussels sprouts up and down the stem. But after having already put 60 days into growing them, I'm sure not going to pull them up. I'm going to give them a chance and see. But uh, it's just, you know, every year Mother Nature seems to find some new way to frustrate us, and that's what she did this right. year. She gave us gave God, us the warm weather, resilient. which, yeah, just softened things up too much. Yeah, the positive thing is I harvested tomatoes forever. <laughs> I have, you know, I was great fall tomato season. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, um, do I cut off the damaged foliage on the sprout? The top part mostly is all brown and wilted. It's just cosmetic. It's totally up to you. If you want to take the time okay. and go through and snip them off, throw them in your compost pile, they will look a lot nicer, uh, but they're not going to come back any faster or do any better because you did that. Okay. Thank you so much for your guidance. I always appreciate it. I always appreciate your calls. You get out and have a wonderful Thanks, Sunday, Angie. Sir. Nice to you talk too. to you. Goodbye. You too. Goodbye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening. Man, today has flown by. Such a pretty day, and I so appreciate all the just great questions. You guys are fantastic. And uh, uh, we'll finish up with, uh, well, I said uh, Chris told me JT dropped off, so it'll be Mark and Tony that we finished up with. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I have a question on mountain laurels. I have two mountain laurels that are about 12 to 14 feet high. They're getting a little... Um, more tree-like and bush-like is. Can I cut those back at all, or is that not not feasible? Okay, your your phone's breaking up a little bit. Tell me so, what kind so, of plant we're talking about. Uh, a mountain laurel. I have a mountain laurel. Oh, mountain laurel. Okay. Now, you know, cut them back if that's possible. If you want to cut it back, you certainly can. Now, unfortunately, if you cut mountain laurel at this time of year, you're sacrificing your spring blooms. So if you enjoy those fragrant purple flowers, you want to wait till after they have bloomed, which is typically oh, into March, 1st of April. You can cut them back without sacrificing flowers that way. Uh, whether you cut them back or not is totally up to you. Now, you never want to take too high a percentage of the foliage off. On a mountain laurel, I would never take more than, oh, probably 25% of the leaves off at any one time. But if you want to change the shape, if you want to make it more tree-like, if you want to make it more bush-like, uh, you're certainly not going to hurt it by pruning. But, again, I would enjoy the flowers this spring and then prune it immediately afterwards. Okay. And then my front yard has been inundated with Okay, your your front yard's been inundated with what now? Uh, weeds. And I just want to, okay. right now, when there's, the, uh, when there's no Bermuda grass, my Bermuda grass is dormant. Um, yeah, you could, yeah, how, with where your Bermuda what I have to do. Yeah, where where your Bermuda grass has uh, frozen back and is brown, you can go back in right now with your orange oil and vinegar and you just go through and spray the whole area. All the little green things that are coming up, the winter grass, the dandelions, the henbit, 
all the all the winter weeds that come up you'll kill them within a few minutes with your vinegar and orange oil and you will not harm your permanent Bermuda grass in any way this is this is a perfect time as a matter of fact to get rid of most of the weeds that sprout over the winter months because that heavy frost that uh, cold weather we had this week totally froze back even the St. Augustine so uh, it'd be a great day to get out there and spray okay and how many applications would you suspect it would take? Because it's colder weather. I know it works better in the heat, but yeah. not so much the cold. Oh, it'll it'll work fine now. The thing is that, uh, and the and the weeds that you spray with it, it will kill them dead. Those weeds are not going to re-sprout. Uh, you always have the potential that more seeds could sprout and come back. Uh, but every little hembit, every little dandelion, uh, they're going to be dead. You know, 15 minutes okay. after you spray, they're going to shrivel and go away. Uh, how much they come back will just depend on how much seed you've got in your yard and uh, what Mother Nature does as far as helping it sprout. We've we've definitely moved into a drier period, but like we've had, uh, you know, the past two, three days, we've had a lot of drizzle. We've had a lot of moisture that uh, didn't really soak the soil, but it got the seed good and wet. So I don't think we're through seeing winter seeds sprout, but uh, anything that you have to respray for will be new plants. What you spray is going to die. Okay. And one last question. I have a nice garden. Uh, now, I'm going to get uh, some uh, live oak sprouts in uh-huh. there. Anything I can do for that? Uh, these are the sprouts that are coming up in the yard? Yes, in, in, yeah. the, uh, in the raised garden. The uh, the the root sprouts coming off of a live oak are a perfectly normal occurrence, but uh, they tend to be a lot worse when uh, the big tree is stressed one way or another. It can be stressed by weather. Most common stress on a live oak is that the trunk has gotten buried a little too deeply and the root flare needs to be exposed. Uh, the root sprouts, you can get out there with a grub and hoe. You can mow them off. Uh, my friend David Vaughn, that's uh, just an outstanding arborist, said that he did not feel that there was really any danger on the little root sprouts uh, of oak wilt by mowing them off. So uh, in areas in the grass or things like that, you know, probably just mow them off and be rid of them. But if you want to cut down on the number of them you have long term, take a look at exposing that root flare. Uh, just do everything you can to minimize the stress on the bigger trees, and you'll have a lot fewer root sprouts. All right. Appreciate the information, Bob. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for the call, Mark. Appreciate it. All right. uh, Let's talk to Tony. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, Bob. Hey, thank you very much for taking my call. Well, thank you for calling. You've helped me before, and I really appreciate it. I've got crepe myrtle trees that are very old, and so the trunks just look really bad from years and years of crepe murder before me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I cut two of them all the way to the ground, and they came back as beautiful bushes. Uh-huh. And they grew a lot. So I was going to cut them all down to do the same thing, but as a bush, should I just, right, you know, like about now, just cut everything down and, and just shred everything and just let it come back new every spring? Well, I, it takes a lot of energy for a plant to, you know, put out that new growth. 
and if you do it over and over and over again, uh, your plant is ultimately going to show the you know the stress of that. So uh, I don't recommend that. I mean, if you want a beautiful bushy crepe myrtle that doesn't get over six feet tall, plant a six foot variety. Uh, you it certainly doesn't hurt to cut them back periodically. And you can go through the the thing, the way to avoid the, the crepe murder, so to speak, is just you don't want to just go through and lop them off at a random point. It sounds like these were really big varieties, varieties that in the past have been 15, 20 feet tall. And if you want to keep them down to, say, 6 feet, 8 feet, something like that, you simply go through every spring and you cut them back. But you don't cut them back to a random point. You follow that that trunk that's gotten too tall you follow it down to a point that has already got a limb coming off pointing a direction that you want it to grow and then you cut it back just above that point and so instead of getting a bird's nest of 15 little sprouts coming out the plant just puts its energy into that that limb that was already there and uh, you can certainly go through and cut them back every year but I, I wouldn't just totally remove all the foliage and make them start over or eventually they'll get tired of coming back and they just fold up and die on you okay yeah the ones i turn into a bush they grew almost as tall as the others like 12 sure. feet tall in oh, a yeah. year or two so so I, I like that i'm out in the country so they line the driveway sure and so i think i'm going to bring them all down to bushes because i love that i mean they are just beautiful oh yeah yeah, and as uh, long as you provide them, you know, with, uh, uh, if it were me, I, yeah, I wouldn't do it quite yet. I'm probably going to make that a project for end of March, very early April, about the time they would normally be sprouting out. But I would go ahead and put some fertilizer on them. I'd get you some good uh, organic fertilizer and fertilize the whole row of them, let them store all the nutrients they can store this time of year. And that way, when you cut them back and the weather warms, they will come back out in a big hurry for you. And and the ones that you've cut back that you really like the way they're looking, if you want to maintain them, you know, let's say where they've come back out and they put on 12 or 15 trunks standing up, go through and thin them out. Take a, a third of those trunks out uh, so that you will encourage some new growth coming out, but at the same time you've left some uh, good, strong uh material behind to uh, put on plenty of good growth and what you're going to end up with is just you're going to have a half day's work every spring just to go through and thin them back out uh, neaten them up again but uh, as a result they'll be pretty from now on sounds good Bob thank you very much and uh, have a great day well, you do the same, Tony, and thank you for the call this morning. Ah, uh, let's see. Don't know, Chris, do we have anybody waiting right now? All right, then I tell you what, I'm just going to run through a few things that I think would be a very good thing for you to do. Of course, Dr. Kirby will be in here any minute now, and uh, we'll be getting ready to spend an hour talking about your pet's health up next year on KTSA. But if you're looking for things that would be a really good thing to do today, fertilize. If you haven't already fertilized in the past 60 days or so, uh, don't listen to all those people that say you don't fertilize in the winter months. This is one of the most important times of year to 
fertilize, use organic fertilizers because they don't wash away. They bind to the soil, this principle we call cation exchange, and the nutrient stays there so that your plants will, number one, so that your root system will stay active uh, during the year or during the winter months, and that's really important. I mean, you want your you want your root systems to stay active all winter so they'll come out great in the spring, and that's one of the things that fall fertilizing does. The other thing is it allows your plants to store the nutrient they need to make that strong burst of spring growth. And this goes for grass, it goes for ground covers, it goes for your shrubs, uh, and it certainly goes for your trees as well. So I just can't overemphasize the importance uh, of fertilizing. Now, if things got hit with the cold this week, and a lot of them did, uh, keep in mind what the most cold-hardy flowers for the winter months are, and those are pansies and Johnny Jump Ups. Those really didn't suffer much damage, and if you're looking for some great color through the rest of the winter, have a sunny spot to do it, this would not be a bad afternoon to get out and plant a few more. Looking for something different, but want something that's really cold-hardy, probably second most cold-hardy uh, plants out there are going to be your dianthus. They're not going to bloom as much during the winter, but they're going to give you a tremendous show of color on into the spring. Um, we kind of take our chances with things like stock and alyssum and some of those things that did freeze because we just don't know what the weather's going to do for the rest of the winter months, but uh, a lot of folks still putting more things like that out. In your vegetable garden, things that look totally frozen, replace them, and unfortunately that's going to be a number of things. We just having had so much warm weather followed by such bitterly cold weather earlier this week, a lot of things in the garden froze. On the other hand, a lot of things suffered some cosmetic damage. I know in uh, my garden, my mustard, my chard, uh, my kale looks terrible, but it will come back. So I'll just go through and neaten it up a little bit and let it come on back out. I'll probably plant a few more plants. I've talked to a lot of people that had broccoli and things just totally freeze. I hate to say it, but just time to time to put in a few more plants. And it wasn't that it got so terribly cold, but what happened to us this time around is just that we had a couple of weeks of really, really warm weather, and uh, the plants just, uh, you know, they just decided it was spring. They go into growing, and then when we got that severe cold, uh, we did we didn't uh, end up with a whole lot of damage. Uh, don't get carried away with watering, but get out and feel the soil if it's dry an inch deep give it a good thorough soaking but uh, again most of the soils retaining pretty good moisture uh, just because we've had uh, a lot of overcast weather we haven't had a lot of evapotranspiration going on that's about all for the garden